Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plot Lines. I'm your host, Connor. And, you know, it's been a while. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, it's the last episode, I think, was a Christmas episode, and that was pre recorded, uh, uh, which we had a great debate over Santa Claus on this channel. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope you had a good Christmas. And, I mean, Christmas season's still going on. So I hope you all. Uh, are enjoying your time with family, relaxing a little bit, probably getting back to work. But still, uh, I have the pleasure today to be talking to Marcus Furious Pertinax back on the channel. We are going to be talking about the Imperial Idea, and we're going to be using Charles Coulomb's uh, Blessed Charles of Austria, A Holy Emperor and His Legacy to guide us. Uh, welcome back to the show, Marcus. Ah, oh, cheers, Connor. Thank you, my friend. I, I know this streams have been a couple of w weeks slash months in in the in the planning, but we got here at last. Um, yeah, m the back end of twenty twenty three got a bit crazy, so I haven't had too many sort of free slots. But no, thank you for being patient. I appreciate, it. and I also appreciate the invite. And I know we sort of kind of we've been back and forth discussing what we'd canvas and how to sort of do this discussion because this is the thing. I mean, if we're going to go back to sort of like the birth of the Roman Republic and then the transition of the Republic to Imperium. And we'll touch on the, the Persian Shah. And uh, I think even in the dot points, you're sort of saying like, you know, the idea of sort of King David's le legacy played out by the, um, by King Herod and the transition of the, um, the Roman Principate to the Domines and the, and the formation of, you might say, Western Imperial, the Western Imperial ideal. It has its origins in quite, uh, hallowed antiquity um and it's not an easy thing to sort of explain or certainly it's it's not a brief conversation you can't you, you can't get to the conclusion in 10 minutes so well it's, i it's mean a brief conversation in its own in its own right well yeah i mean you're perfect for not brief conversations marcus exactly uh, <laughs> so it's uh you're the absolute right person to have on especially because I wouldn't say I know nothing about the ancient world, but I certainly uh, am less familiar with it than uh, anything post like post uh, Christianization like that. Like uh, that is my much more my wheelhouse of things. So when you it, mean pre Christianization, my wheelhouse is post Christianization. Oh, sorry. Your wheelhouse is. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Indeed. you're here to help me understand the ancient world um, uh so i wanted to start with a uh with a passage from the book uh from charles Coulomb's book i'll have a link in the description to the book for anybody who's interested the first chapter is called the imperial idea and it's where i got the idea for this discussion and uh later this week or next week we will, I will be having Charles Coulomb on to discuss sort of the non-ancient aspects of uh, Christian uh, imperial idea, not just the ancient part. So I'm going to read this part. And it's this. So for him, it will say him in it. Uh, it's referring to Blessed Charles. But the point of this is to get an idea of where the imperial idea came from. For him, as for his predecessors, it, it, it described a supranational entity that for the most part successfully carried on what to us must seem a great paradox. For such an entity, on the one hand, encompassed many diverse regions, 
jealous of their local liberties, subsidiarity, as we would say today, with the emperor whose authority, as opposed to power, was supreme, that authority derived from God and the church and hallowed by tradition was exercised by that emperor over each of his provinces and peoples according to their own laws. This was the imperial idea that Blessed Charles inherited, and to understand him, we must understand it. Uh, Marcus, what do you make of that? Well, I was going to say that's obviously the the impression, well, not the impression, it's an, it's an accurate statement of particularly sort of how it, it would play out with um, with Austria-Hungary, and I suppose being something of a multinational empire, certainly a multi-ethnic one, and the idea of um, sort of like a, a, a balanced sort between this sort of idea of, I don't use the word omnipotent because it's not necessarily omnipotent, but of absolute power characterized in an emperor, a, a sort of a figurehead that sits at the top of this hierarchy, but then sort of also being uh, a, a little bit um, sort of softened isn't the correct term, but um, you know, like the, the carried out also with this idea of noblesse oblige to use the French um, phraseology. You know, that it, it's not necessarily like the, it's not a, a permissiveness to rule by tyranny or to rule by fiat or to act in the manner of, you know, like a, a, a despot. But, um, you know, that the sort of governance by an emperor is a is a, a system that is um, not only functional in the real world, but actually corresponds with, say, for us as, as Christians, for us as, as Catholics, certainly as Catholics. Um, that is sort of uh, obedient to the laws of God, even, and to some and to some regard, is sort of the the uh, uh, a more true expression of sort of you might say divine order on earth, as it were, uh, and that the emperor somewhat embodies that idea. Um, hence, in like even in the Western conception, uh, very much this is, and this is where it does deviate to some degree from the East is that you know we kind of have this idea of sort of divine rule or divine right, and that sort of there's this sort of relationship between an emperor who rules over their empire and and or a king even you know the, the concepts the same because i don't think this was also embodied by the kings of england the kings of france the kings of castile in spain kings of naples that sort of thing uh king of hungary even um that uh you know like for instance their their, their rulership was sort of um uh, you know ordained by by you know the almighty uh and that with uh, great powers comes great responsibilities and and duties even um, I always think of a phrase, uh, was it, I think Franz Josef said that, um, you know, my position exists uh, to protect my uh, my subjects from their politicians, which <laughs> I think is a, <laughs> a wonderful um, turn of phrase. Um, Wasn't and, it but, Theodore yeah. Roosevelt who was really confused by that prospect? Uh, actually, I'm not aware of that. But it wouldn't surprise he, me, though. I think he was traveling and he asked Franz Josef, uh, why, why, do you, why does your job exist? I think that's where it comes from. I think he was responding to. Uh, oh, see, I didn't know that Theodore Roosevelt, but I could be wrong. That's yeah. just in. Although, if true, that's actually. Oh, I, I presume it is true, but that would actually be make quite the fascinating conversation. I would love to be an insect on the wall listening to that conversation because I mean, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and Franz Josef are two very large figures of the you know beginning of this or oh, the, the the century just gone. You know, the the twentieth century. They're very sort of titanic political figures in their own right. Indeed, and they they couldn't mm. be further away from each other in mm. sort of, um, I guess, ideal, but maybe yeah. the si similar in, like, personality type. Yeah. 
exactly uh, yeah or at least like both being extreme sort of like larger than life characters insofar that if teddy was this sort of you know adventurous safari you know boisterous combative uh ex exponent of like american culture that was you know young and vital because at the point in time you know the the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century that's the kind of nation america was i mean it still you know it still had a frontier still had the wild west it was still you know that kind of a place uh that people could you know arrive at ellis island you know penniless and then sort of in 20 years be a captain of industry like america was that kind of a country was austria hungary was very much you know sort of kind of semi-feudal still you know you know very much a, a country governed by the old rules of europe and the old order and you know like vienna was one of the oldest uh sort of continuously maintained courts in europe and you know austria hungary you got to think um the the emperors of austria hungary been sort of elected sort of for the most part un until it was abolished in in, in napoleon's time had been almost the continuous monarchs of the Holy Roman Empire for, for centuries, you know, and, and was and held leadership of Germany until the rise of Prussia. Um, so you you very much have this legacy uh, and this system that Americans would feel almost perplexing and antiquated, um, and they're very much contradictory in, in that sense. And not to say that the Austria Austria Hungary sort of lacked vitality but it, it just it, you know you're comparing an old society with a new society that have very different energies very different sort of if you consider them if you consider a society or a country as an organism you know one is older one is younger and they have different qualities i suppose is the point i'm trying to make yeah one's trying to expand but also one's extremely chaotic and the other one is uh, more stable at least mm. at least regularly i would i would say yes. austria hungary was pretty stable War is the only thing that made it unstable. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to some degree too, maybe it's uh it's uh like for example, take like Prussia, right, which was um, predominantly sort of Eastern Middle German with you know smatterings of Polish, um, you know minorities, shall we say? But for the for for, for the most part, it was a essentially a um a uniform state, you know, with a yeah. uniform culture, and you have this slight divergence between. Lutherans and Protestants, uh, uh, sorry, Lutherans, Protestants, and Catholics, but for the most part, it was relatively a a uniform, East, like Prussian German society. It was like Austria-Hungary because it was it was a kind of country that it was, and you know it was governed from Vienna with an, an Austrian sort of Germ Germanic Austrian elite, and mm -hmm. uh, mostly Germ German uh, and Austrian um, nobility that governed over parts of northern italy but you know lombardy and venezia and um what italians call the istria but the the, the littorial province right um it, it governed parts of croatia and dalmatia and slovenia it governed the the region the regions of um you know mon what we understand as czechoslovakia you know the sudetenland and bohemia moravia um you know it governed what was a, a very large hungarian sub-state within austria um it also had romanians and it had you know serbians and it had all these sort of minority groups and it had to find a way to actually stitch these people together into a cohesive identity uh, which was a very different system to what prussia had in, in that sense a lot more work yes um but yeah so i would have hated to, i would have hated to commander in the austro-hungarian army because depending what unit you got and what soldiers <laughs> you had you would have had to have learned like a second or third language just to make orders understood <laughs> yeah i almost think it'd been fun though to be like a sort of carrying out the orders 
uh, of yeah. not not in the military, but in the uh, sort of trying like the to or yeah the government yeah. like trying to figure out that. Yeah. Indeed, definitely a challenge. Although, although the good thing is, if you if you traveled all the way from essentially you know Vienna to 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 to, to Prague to Bratislava, which was Pressburg, then all the way down to um you know Zagreb, wherever you were in the sort of the empire as such. Uh, every street sign would have had, I suppose, like the native language of that region. But then every, you know, there'd always be like the German as well, because obviously being a part of a German state, like everything would have a German name attached to it, you know? So is that like, it's kind of this, it's America, like America and Spanish in some sense these days. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, I'm getting like, I don't, I, I don't, I'm interested to see you obviously won't have, wouldn't deal with this, but for other Americans, I'm seeing a lot. I'm getting like ads on YouTube and stuff like that, even on TV sometimes in Spanish. And I'm like, I have no idea what, like, how would this, how this is functional? Cause like, yeah. it's, it's going to be like half the people, or like more than half the people won't know what the ad is for or yeah. what it's saying to you. So I just think that's a really bad marketing situation. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the, um, the joys of modern, the joys of modern day and, and saturation advertising, but that that's another discussion for another day. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, so uh, we go or help bring us back to uh, the origins of uh, the imperial idea. So, with with the Romans, they are sort of notorious for uh, the fact that they overthrew their kings and established a republic now how did how did that happen what who were their kings and how did they get rid of them sorry um yeah i'm back uh yeah well this is the interesting thing is that the the if you take the legacy of the roman state from its it's two extremities, right? And uh, people are going to roll their eyes because, like, oh, he he goes furious the Byzantophile. <laughs> um, we we reckon if we if we consider, well, it sort of depends. There's sort of two start dates. There's either the apoph apocryphal kind of um, almost semi mythological foundation of Rome, the settlement or the or the state, you know, and, and that means essentially adhering to the the um, the mythology to some degree of Aeneas and descendant from that the uh the stories of Romulus and Remus and again one doesn't have to necessarily accept that as gospel truth for there to be you know how like sometimes the a historical truth is shrouded in a mythos you know like we don't necessarily know if um you know the Trojan War was sort of born of the will of Zeus for instance but we know that Troy the city exists if he existed, <laughs> if you get what I mean, right? Like it's, we don't necessarily know the complete truth, but we know there's something pertaining to a truth between the lines, if you get yeah. what I mean. Like, yeah, even though you know, like, people had spent so long trying to convince people that it didn't exist, right? Exactly, right? Like, oh, it's purely mythology, mythological, purely mytho mythological. And then, you know, like a German uh, archaeologist like discovers like seven layers to Troy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> eventually. Um, so if we take the earliest reckonings of the Roman identity, or the Roman state, we go back to 753. If we talk about the establishment of the Roman Republic, and we, we know this because a lot like the Greeks, the Romans were avid writers and the Romans recorded their own doings, essentially, that the Roman state was 
you know, if we follow our, you know, our calendar and our references of history, we go back to, I think it was like 509 BC, if memory serves me right. Yeah, um, so they we, were overthrown in 509 BC. Yeah, so so this is, um, and and again, Rome was uh, <clears throat> sort of, how can I put this? It wasn't necessarily like a, a, a puppet as such, but kind of like a, a sort of like a semi-vassal state, the vassal state of the Etruscans, because essentially the Etruscans would, um, uh, a member of their nobility would serve essentially as a king of Rome. But there's this whole um, sort of, again, mythos, a mythological story of the last king, Tarquinus Superbus. And it's actually interesting that um, Superbus um, remains a, uh, in terms of linguistic etymology, Superbia in Italian is basically a, a synonym for arrogance. Like it still <laughs> exists in language today. Wow. Um, okay. in, in Italian lexicon. So. Um, Tarquinus Superbus was the last uh, Etruscan king of Rome and was basically chased out by a, a populace that had grown tired of the sort of the, the Etruscan yoke upon Rome. And there's sort of like a bit of a backstory about the, the, the rape of, one, uh, of a, one of the daughter senators and, you know, the people turned on Tarquinus. And again, it's the, that whole idea of, you know, when, when kingship goes astray and becomes indulgent and, um, you know, like self-gratifying and negligent of its, of his duties, you know, kind of like how we would picture, you know, like a Nero or a Caligula or, you know, a dysfunctional emperor of that sort, you know, in Roman history. Um, and would then, these be, uh, would their uh, kings be seen as like God kings, like many other ancient kings? I I can't say I um I have sufficient knowledge of Etruscan history to, to, to be able to answer that question honestly because like just it's a case of i'd rather not you know not lie about it but i'd rather not speculate on something i'm I'm not sufficiently versed on but um but it was a case that uh th there was obviously this instance and and whether that the sort of the overthrow of the monarchy is um is tied to that particular event or whether sort of it's just something that the romans then mention later is kind of um uh, essentially an excuse you know the traditional narrative of this is that uh, uh that uh tarquinus basically rapes a noble woman by the name of uh lucretia which is interesting because in medieval history as we come to know <laughs> like with the um with the um Borgias? Uh, the Borgias, yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, Lu Lucrezia again is sort of like <laughs> the, the the woman who's the center of of controversy you know that's funny uh, you know, it's the whole idea of that, you know, like history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And sometimes the characters have the same names, you know. And so uh, one of the oldest uh, families of Rome in terms of, you know, like it's 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 founding cadre of um, of nobles, uh, the Brutii, uh, Lucius Junius Brutus, uh, basically leads a, re a rebellion of the aristocracy that casts out um, the sexist... Uh, uh, well, firstly, Sextus Tarquinus, which I believe is the father of of Tarquinus Superbus, um, and they're both basically ejected from the city. And uh, and, and Romans devise this this system. Essentially, it's like a, a what do you call it? like a, a a republican sort of pseudo democratic diarchy of two consuls that are elected every year, 
and amongst the chamber of of senators and it's a system that uh, basically continues for more or less the next 500 years but the thing is it's a system that the romans obviously devised for themselves as because when they establish the republic they they begin their system rome is essentially a city-state rome itself is is uh, uh i don't like to use the word vassal uh, sorry a uh, uh, a puppet because it's not necessarily bright but it was something of a vassal state at the southern periphery of the etruscan state which in itself is a bit inaccurate because etruria was almost more of a, like a loose confederation of cities that shared an identity um because even today we don't necessarily know the origins of the etruscans there's so much speculation that you know are they a remnant of the sea peoples that you know brought about the ends of the bronze age were they refugees from troy which also plays into the um the origin story of the romans if you know, if you read virgil's aeneid and the idea of you know like uh, the, the the kings of alba um of alba longa which is actually just south of rome you know granted this this territory on the tiber uh, to this these group of refugees that become like the nascent roman people there's a whole bunch of mythology that you could get into as to what the actual origin story is um but the etruscans it, it, like we know with the romans for instance that the very least if if they do prescribe to that story then they would have intermingled with native italic latin peoples we sort of know the if we follow the archaeology we sort of know what the the um sort of the ethnogenesis is of of the italic and latin peoples that populated that part of italy right and the romans eventually become become well they are that and they they become exponents of that but nonetheless, they, they fall under the, um, the, the political sovereignty of the Etruscans to their north. And so uh, the Etruscans kind of have like this, what you would call like a confederation. The, the Etruscans, um, they, they sort of, it's a strange kind of system, but they kind of like appoint kings more than anything. <laughs> or they sort of like have this sort of rule by um, like self-governing sort of city-states. And then they sort of like elect their leaders, but to a position of, um kind of like what the romans would develop later with the, the 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 role of the dictator that it would be sort of like absolute power but with limited term if you get what i mean and then mm -hmm. they would have to relinquish power after a, 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 a given term i actually sort of i've always thought that the romans based the idea of the dictatorship on the etruscan model but applied it with a more um like for example that the romans would have like a political um limitation to the dictator and they actually had a model by which they would use it you know like a framework it's like this is what a dictator is and the senate can vote for this but it's a it's a position of absolute power for a limited term of office and i think the romans kind of formalize that as a as a distinct um function of government which is why uh, actually, at some point in time i'm actually going to go back on Oren mcintyre's channel i should have to do more reading about this but it's this, uh, it's why I, I viscerally hate the word dictator being used in modern lexicon because it's actually <laughs> really, really inaccurate. Um, you know, you know, like well, that's why I was we, thinking it was kind of funny when I don't know if you heard Trump say he would be a dictator for a day or something like that. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. it actually reminds me more of that because you know, like that that would actually be a, a somewhat truthful understanding of the term. Exactly. I mean, essentially, whenever an, an American president passes an executive order, they're basically acting as a function of a dictator. And, and I don't even mean that in a pejorative sense, but in a terms of function, basically utilizing the executive branch is acting in the matter of a, of, of a dictator, not in the way that, you know, 
MSNBC or CNN or BBC use the word dictator, but in the actual formal Roman context, passing an executive law, bypassing arms of government is actually acting in that way, um, which isn't a value judgment. It's just a description of a function. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting that Romans do this. But the thing is, what's actually interesting is that the dictatorship is actually a really critical role because um, uh, that, that within Roman history and, and that there's a number of instances and, and particularly like my namesake, right? I mean, Furious and Pertinex are two different people in Roman history. And the first one is Marcus, um, Marcus Furious Camillus, uh, who I actually consider one of the best Romans. And I think one of the greatest exponents of Roman virtue. And I think one of the most important figures of Roman history that's kind of overlooked, you know, a lot of people, I mean, and I, and I say this as, as a fan of Julius Caesar, for instance, but you know, there's there's all these figures that come along sort of after, you know, whether it's Scipio Africanus or it's Quintus Fabius Maximus or it's Flamininus or, 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 or Pompey or Sulla or Caesar, whoever it is, and they get like a lot of the oxygen in the discussion. They get a lot of the sort of notoriety and they, they get all the attention from people who like history. But sort of Marcus Furius Camillus is this sort of almost, again, kind of, well, it's not mythological. It's, it's, it's almost certain that he did exist. But it's sort of so far in Rome's past that it's sort of semi-mythological. Like even his quotations are considered to be semi-mythological. We only sort of have them because the Romans wrote about themselves. And you know, people like Virgil went back and discussed it. You know, Polybius, even though he was ethnically Greek, Polybius wrote a lot of this stuff in, in, in his work as well. And so we sort of have to rely on these sort of these um, sort of scholars and historians who wrote about Rome's own past from their own sources, but those those primary sources were lost. So we sort of are trusting the second hand sources, so to speak, even though they were still from ancient times. Um, but uh, Furious Camillus was um, elected dictator, I believe, um, on, on several occasions. And what's actually interesting is that he took command of the Roman army and captured the city of Vei, which is just north of Rome. Uh, Vei's probably close to like what is now the northern border of where Lazio intersects with Tuscany in modern-day Italy. Um, and the Romans had been besieging Vei, Vei for at least 20 years. It was actually like a really, really prolonged siege, and every source talks about it being a long siege, so there's no dispute about that. <laughs> but Furious conceives of a way to um, undermine the city, and to utilize um, like the, because even like in those times, even though the Romans were more modest in their architecture construction, they were still very good at what they did. And, you know, most Italian towns had, you know, cisterns and aqueducts in, on, a, on a much smaller scale than the, you know, like the aqueducts you see in like the Imperial Asia, they build like, you know, hundreds of miles or hundreds of kilometers of, of aqueducts and they pass over entire provinces. Like that comes a lot later. But most cities in Italy, because of you look at the topography with Italy being quite mountainous with the Dolomites and the Apennines and whatever, most of these larger places would have had their own cisterns and reservoirs and water, you know, that sort of stuff, right? So he actually uses the 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 uh, the the, uh, the architecture of the waterworks to basically undermine his way into Vey and captures the city. But then because he doesn't offer a sufficient offering to Mars, um, and, I and I believe there was a, like a, almost a semi-rebellion amongst the soldiers because he didn't distribute enough loot because he <laughs> actually, well, it, it, and it was more that he suggested that Vey should be resettled by Romans rather than burnt to the ground and sacked. Uh, <laughs> Vey, because if you look on a map, Vey kind of protects, because the Tiber kind of comes in from the Tyrrhenian and then sort of goes north up the Italian peninsula. 
And so he figured that it was in a very strategic location, which he's right, actually, because they kind of a, protects the approach to Rome from the north. Um, and then he was cast out and exiled to a place called Ardea, which is not far from sort of modern-day Anzio. Um, and then, of course, when the Gauls made their way down Rome in 390 BC and basically destroyed the Roman army, the, the Battle of River Alia, um, Furious is essentially their last hope. And with a ragtag band of veterans and, you know, like liberated convicts and mercenaries, he makes his way to Rome and actually saves Rome from the Gauls or from the Senones, technically speaking. Um, but, you know, and, and liberates Rome. And, and then he's appointed dictator, you know, several times afterwards because the Romans are extremely appreciative for the fact that he saved them. So it's sort of interesting how these sort of things come in cycles, if you get what I mean, you know. And, yeah. and like, he acts in the manner of a dictator, which is, you know, it's not Saddam Hussein, it's not Muammar Gaddafi, it's not, you know, it's not the Austrian painter, it's not, you know, Mussolini, Kaiser Wilhelm or Mussolini. It's it's its own thing. That actually, are you putting those together in the same <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm in the same uh, grouping? But, but like, but like in the in the sense that like the the media, particularly the Western media times, has framed all these people of being of a similar ilk. I'm not sure they narrative. know who Kaiser Wilhelm even is. Oh, they probably don't. But like, no, <laughs> but, like, but, no, but, I'm, but I'm saying, if you look at like World War One propaganda posters, you know, sure, and the narrative that was pushed by Western media to justify entry into the war, for instance, or to actually, you know, to fight the Germans, you know, it's always the the next best or worst thing, and it's always, you know, the guy that we're fighting is always the pinnacle of evil. That's the point I'm trying to make, and the and the and the specter of dictatorship is a part of that particularly coming from like a liberal west a liberal sort of anglospheric tradition they've always used that specter to like oh this is the enemy of our traditions and this is the enemy of our worldview because dictator even though the word doesn't fit like it's actually really really ill-fitting and, and it's not like it's, it's 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 actually definitively wrong you know i see why you uh look to um furious as a sort of a namesake hmm. um because you know it sounds like a very um inspiring story as well as si the success you know i think hmm. there's a lot of um people that look often towards people who are defeated uh hmm. as inspiration and hmm. uh it's interesting that you found somebody you can respect that is that was successful mm. uh, well, well you got to think in 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 sort of simultaneously he's something of a redeemer a victor and um sort of like a man who who rebuilds his own image amongst his own people you know if you were expelled from your country there would be significant part when i say you not just you specifically but anyone watching this right and this includes myself if you're expelled from the country that you fought for and that you were a general of their armies and you were a patriot and a senator for and you were expelled by those people, it'd be understandable if a part of you went, well, now the Gauls are invading. Good. You know, you've made this bed, now sleep in like, yeah. it. That's, that's a perfect, it, I wouldn't call it a noble response, but it's a perfectly understandable response for some to feel animosity. But no, he busied himself utilizing what resources he had and on the pure, the, the um, because the Romans basically have this thing. It's called the Mos Maiorum, which is um essentially like the Roman equivalent of what we would say understand is like the chivalric code or the 
the the samurai sort of notion of bushido like the idea of like having virtues that describe the 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 performative ideal of a man shall we say or or, or a patriot or a leader and one of the roman virtues is um octoritas which is the 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 ability to sort of have um charisma and to to utilize oratory and um you know and and to be able to express intellect as a means of being able to rally people to a cause or to rally people in defense of country or or to liberate the country and someone like furious camillus would have had to have extraordinary authoritas to you know go to these little colonies of veterans and bring them out of retirement you know they'd, they'd fought for the republic for decades it's like guys one more one more like get your armor we got one more fight you know, we have to save rome you know and then hey listen you're a prisoner you've been you've been imprisoned by the republic either you rot in this prison forever or we're going to give you swords and shields and you come live right room with us well that still takes persuasion you yeah, know definitely. and then with whatever money he had whoever was like whatever mercenary bands were around at the time he's like all right guys you might die but if i give you you know a hundred sesterci will you <laughs> join this ragtag army and that's what they do you know and, and he does he saves rome and i don't know if you know much about the the because Marcus Furius Camillus is called the second founder of Rome. That, mm. That's sort of his title, essentially. And that's what his people who wrote about him later gave him basically that epithet. You know, like in the same way that like Belisarius and Aetius and Constantine, a lot of them are called the last Roman. Like they're, they're sort of given that epithet mm-hmm. subsequently, right? Marcus Furius Camillus was given that sort of epithet by people who wrote about him later. But um, the, the, the thing is, is that, um, you know, for he's called the second founder of rome but one of the one of the really intriguing things and again this is well where, where history and myths start to get murky and sort of like meld into like being the one thing but there's a there's a a, a latin phraseology called way victus which means woe to the vanquish and that is allegedly what brennus who was the the leader of the senones said to the roman senate when they started negotiating surrender because it was a case of the Romans were stuck in the Capitoline Hill, like around the center buildings, basically like a mini Acropolis, right? And they were starving. But the Gauls, because they didn't bring supplies with them, were also starving. So basically it was a case of which side was going to starve out first. So that's when they decided to negotiate. And um, and uh, and the Romans, uh, the, the senators were sort of saying to Brennus, well, you're using uh, scales that because basically they like cheated on the scales, like for the scale weights. And and the, the the story goes that Brennus just bursts out like way wictus, like woe to the vanquish, like you're defeated. It's by my rules or no rules. And he throws his sword on the scales. And it's at that moment that Furious Camillus enters the city and enters the enters the uh, the capital line here at the lead of his ragtag army. And he 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 says to Brennus in reply, um, I can't remember actually how to say it in Latin, but basically along the lines of, um, you know, we 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 Romans will liberate or we defend our our, our patrimony not with um, not with gold but with iron. You know, so it's basically this whole thing of like we're not negotiating our existence; we're going to fight you for this city, and then he proceeds to defeat Brennus. So, you know, that 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 there's essentially the the our foundation story of what dictatorship is. Okay. Well, that that's very interesting. It sounds a little bit like the opposite of uh, Denethor and Peter Hitchens. Hmm. Like Essentially, the, uh, sort of the opposite of let it all burn. You know, uh, it, it's you know no use. Um, hmm. We've already lost it. 
Yeah. If 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 uh, Camus Furious was Peter Hitchens, he would have stayed sulking in his villa in Ardea, and the Gauls yeah. would have burnt Rome down to the ground. Well, know? he would have been like, they didn't listen to me, so yeah. can't help anymore. Uh, yeah. Not 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 possible anymore. Uh, and Denethor would have just you know thrown himself from the <laughs> from the walls anyways. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so very interesting that sort of this is a system. Do you think the reason that they um, got rid of the Kings had more to do with the fact that they weren't ruling themselves, like somebody else was ruling them, or was it just the system that they, they wanted to have um, wanted it to be more controlled, I guess? I think elements of both. I think eventually Rome proved to be one of the more prosperous cities. Uh, when I say when I say city, I use the word quite loosely because Rome was still a relatively small place at this point. You know, I mean, I don't know what the population would have been, but I mean, Rome at this point hadn't even built its fortifications, um, to my knowledge. I think I'm pretty sure the Severian walls are built later, um, but the you know it, it had basically you. Because they say that the Rome is a city on seven hills. You know, they have the the, the Palatine, the Capitoline, the Esquiline. Um, you know, the, these hills are sort of symbolised Rome. And like you go to Rome today, and you can actually kind of still see and walk amongst them. You know, because it is as noticeable that Rome is built on these hills, um, the Janiculum, etc. And uh, and uh, so so at this at this point, obviously, like those rather than being like a, a a number of little villages dotted across these hills I'm, at some point in time these settlements converge into a single settlement and rome because of its position along the tiber its proximity to ostia which is the port and given the fact that, you, that when you go inland even from rome you only need to go maybe 50 or so kilometers out of rome heading eastwards and it becomes extremely hilly like almost mountainous and it's a very difficult place to traverse um which is actually why for instance like in a military standpoint it's why rome uh, the the italians basically didn't fight in a phalanx like the greeks did they did have a phalanx but the italian like the various peoples of italy whether it's the samnites or the or the romans themselves or even the etruscans and the lucanians basically don't fight in the greek style because it's too difficult in italy to actually fight in a phalanx um and that's why they sort of end up all changing and fighting in, in in different ways that we end up you know when you read the histories you sort of find out how they fight and it's very different from the greek system because of that um but nonetheless the point i'm making is that rome is this really important junction both to see whether like because the tiber empties out into the tyrrhenian sea which means then it's close to trade routes to to carthage to sardinia to sicily to, which was obviously Greek back then, or mostly Greek, you know, magna, part of Magna Graeca. Um, you know, it, it, it had a trade with Spain. Uh, you know, it, it was very important from that standpoint. And then going up and down Italy, unless you went all the way to the East Coast, there was basically no way of traversing north-south. So Rome was very important from that standpoint. Also, when from the north, if you're heading southwards, Rome was the gateway to the breadbasket of the south. Because up until so like the later Roman like nation and you know republic if you want to call it that um, absorbed places like North Africa, Sicily, Egypt to some extent, and even parts of Spain, the majority of Rome's agricultural produce came from 
not the like not not the actual south south of Italy proper, not like the heel or the toe, but what we sort of now know today is Campania, which is the province around Napoli, um, was a breadbasket for for the the burgeoning city state. You know, places like Capua um, and Beneventum, um, which is are still city or towns today in modern day Italy, um, and even up until recent times were still sort of um, uh, epicenters of Roman agriculture uh, of Italian agriculture was so vital to the to the republic and, and actually even prior to the uh, um, the the like the Romans um, liberating themselves you know for the Etruscans to actually access the south they had to go through Rome so it was a really really um, important juncture geographically speaking. Gotcha. So, so, so what I'm saying is that um, that ensured Roman prosperity as like a subject of the Etruscans, which made them relatively powerful within like the Etruscan network within the Etruscan sort of um, what do you call it? Like this sort of loose confederation, right? So, so and it, it made the easier for them to, or more incentive for them hmm. to, or give them a chance to overthrow the, their rulers. Correct. So, so they had enough, you might say, intrinsic strength and material resources to be able to do it. And then they sort of realized, hey, we actually are wealthy enough to govern ourselves. And then, if you sort of take these stories of the of the Tarquinai as fact, or at least there's a degree of historical truth to it, then essentially the Romans were tyrannized, and eventually, as often happens with kind of any revolution, there's always that spark you know it, whether it's um you know whether it's sort of you know henry the eighth not getting his divorce from the pope or whether it's you know the Protestant tea patriots throwing the tea into the harbor you know, or, you know there's there's you know there's always that that um that spark moment spark yeah and in in the case of 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 the of the um of of the rebellion essentially of the romans against the etruscans you know and being led by uh, lucius junius brutus it was the rape of lucrezia yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and they also seemingly were intellectually far enough that they came upon the system that they were able to create with dictators and consuls and, you know, sort of the republic that mm. uh, lasted a decent while, at least. Hmm. Yeah, just a buttress point I was making before is that it, 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 it was absolutely functional and actually a very efficient system for what Rome started out was, which was as a city-state that governed a relatively small hinterland and with like a couple of allied settlements in its periphery. But it's sort of interesting that Rome works up until it sort of gains domination of Italy. So this is like, our, you know, the Romans fight the, the regional wars against the, the Sabines and the Etruscans and the Samnites in the south. There's actually, you know, a couple of Samnite wars where they absorb the state, the the, the state of Samnium into the Roman sphere. The Romans come to dominate central Italy, and then eventually they press southwards, which is where they start to interact with the Greeks, and that's the whole Pyrrhus thing and the Pyrrhic Wars and the idea of the Pyrrhic victory, because um, <clears throat> they fight three battles against Pyrrhus in the south of, of Italy, and they eventually absorb like the Greek cities of of mainland proper into the Republic. But once Italy becomes more of a than just a, a local power and sort of becomes the regional hegemon, you start to see the cracks appear. Um, and and this is really a case of once Rome fights the Punic Wars and starts to attain foreign territories and needs to appoint governors outside of Italy, 
And this is where also Rome starts having a lot of wealth pour into it because it's not just a city-state that sort of trades locally or, you know, it's just a node of trade amongst a whole bunch of other powers. You know, it's not just trading with Syracuse as a city-state or, you know, Carthage as a merchant republic, but actually Rome itself is starting to bring in a lot of goods for itself. You know, the, as the Romans become victorious and successful and affluent, their own elites and their own even, you know, I use the word middle class really loosely here, but like their own sort of middle classes, as it were, start to have a, an appetite for, for foreign goods. And so Rome starts to become this this sort of, I hate to use the word black hole, but, you know, essentially this, this void that starts sucking in resources, right? And, you know, and, and yeah. it eventually becomes like its own worst enemy in this regard. And it's interesting how writers such as um, you know, Salas, well, well, well this, this is the thing, like people, uh, whether it's Cato the Elder, it's Cicero and more of the like the philosopher types, uh, say like, um, or, or just writers, you know, people like um, Sallust and Florus. Um, and I think even Plutarch touches on this where they sort of speculate that, you know, like, oh, the annexation of Carthage was the worst thing because we lost our enemy that kept us on our toes, you know, or, you know, once we annexed Macedon and, and our treasury trebled in size, you know, it ruined our morals. And like they were cognizant of this in their own time. They were, they speculated this sort of, you know, to, to use a modern modernism, you know, aff, affluenza, you know, like their own success sort of became their own worst enemy and sort of their own writers kind of realize, realize this. And it's sort of interesting how you have this system that is so efficient to govern a city state becomes dysfunctional as it gets larger. You know, like the, the Romans have difficulty keeping its generals loyal. Um, it, it can't administer a public without a standing army because rather than just, oh, Italy's been invaded here, we'll just raise five ten legions and drive out the, the the barbarians or whatever you know once they actually start having provinces in spain and in gaul and in greece or macedon or north africa it, it, it becomes like a, a a case of they need defense you know like they've got these far-flung provinces they have to protect from foreigners but once you have a standing army it's kind of like the problem with america like you know if you read the the early the federalist papers and like the writings of your founders they all understood the danger of a, of a standing army in the context of a of a republican democratic kind of system but rome has the same problem back then and it sort of was a part of its undoing because you know what what eventually happens you know marius sort of you know becomes like a essentially like a generalissimo of the republic sulla marches on rome sulla liquidates his opponents and then sort of you know a, a, a generation later caesar marches on rome when the senators give him a fait accompli and then a generation after that, you have these wars between, um, firstly, between Octavian and Mark Antony as the inheritors of Caesar's legacy against the so-called liberators, Brutus and um, and uh, Cassius Longinus. And then at the very end, you have like this climactic bat uh, struggle between Mark Antony and Octavian. And this is just like the, that, that system atrophying at its absolute maximal extent, you know, and, and just proving that that system was not functional at an empire level as, a, as an imperium, um, which I suppose to sort of get back, we've been on a massive Roman tangent, but no, no, sort of like to cut good. back, to cut back to the, the core of this talking, this, this, this discussion and, and the bullet points we're sort of wanting to touch on that strangely enough in the West, like even though, for instance, the Etruscans did style themselves as Kings, if we consider the sort of apocryphal mythological past, if they came from the east, it would make sense because 
the idea of sort of like kingship was far more uh, uh, an idea from the Eastern Mediterranean than the Western one. Um, I know, for instance, if you like, again, look for shreds of truth amongst Greek mythology, you know, there was a, there was a king of Argos, there was a king of Sparta, there was a, you know, there's a king of Mycenae, you know, there was a, a king of, you know, all these parts of Greece, you know, like um, Trojan War, you know, uh, Odysseus is the king of Ithaca, for instance, right? But they're kind of, they're almost more like princedoms than actual kingdoms as we would understand them in the more like in, in eras closer to our time, like say if you compare it to say like Angevin England or Plantagenet England or you know Capetian France, like it's a very different form of kingship, right? Um, but then eventually a lot of these kingships sort of vanish in the in the, uh, the sort of the culmination of the Trojan War and then sort of the Bronze Age collapse and all of that. Um, and then in the West, you kind of have this system of you know you have a Roman Republic, um, you have the Carthaginian sort of uh, 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 what you could describe as um, sort of a uh, an aristocratic merchant republic that is sort of headed by a, a few noble families. You know the you know the Barkids, the um, the Hanids. Like uh, there's a few other families I can't think of, but you know the the the, the, the prominent families of Carthage sort of govern it as a, as an aristocratic merchant republic. Uh, if you go further north, because I wouldn't call myself by any means an expert on like the celtic gallic sphere but I, I sort of have an admiration for them because you know much is said about you know like oh we're the civilized greeks and romans and they're the barbarians but the barbarians are rather less uncivilized than people give them credit for and you know the the gauls and the i mentioned the germans in the same kind of stretch but particularly say like the gauls and like the western celts you know there's this idea that they sort of live in in tribes and they might elect leaders every so often but they're sort of governed on a day-to-day -day basis by like a sort of almost like a council of elders as it were it's actually quite um the societies are hierarchical they are stratified but they're not nearly as um uh as as distinct to say like the roman or the greek systems were and there was actually a, a i actually kind of don't like the word because it's sort of we have a, a, a modern text context for but it was almost a bit egalitarian insofar that, you know, uh, even the nobles and the, shall I call them peasants, in a Gallic village or, a, you know, a Gallic tribe, there wasn't a huge distinction between them in terms of, you know, how wealthy or how much land they did or didn't own. They kind of like just sort of got on and did their own thing without too much animosity or too much like um, uh, class animosity, I suppose, is the word I could use um but, but it's a system that worked and it worked at their level but they but had for example like a gallic tribe did what the romans did with like the averni or the the or the adui or whoever the nervii conquered all of gaul then that system wouldn't have worked you know like at a, at a national level at a, at a at a an empire level that system works because they lived in tribes and they had their own areas and their own regions and they governed themselves so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the West had these systems which weren't as autocratic or de despotic as in the East. Whereas if you look at the East, right, you know, Lydia had kings, Assyria had kings, the Mitanni had kings. You know, um, the, one of the big trading cities of the East prior to the Bronze Age collapse was a, a place by the name of Ugarit. Um, Ugarit was ruled by a king. You know, Cyprus had a king. Egypt had the pharaohs. Um, and 
prior to the rise of Persia as in Cyrus unifying the, the, the Iranian peoples into, you know, what we come to know as the Persian Empire, you know, its predecessor, the media, the Medeans, or media, as if you want to call it that, was ruled by like essentially like a proto-Shah. Well, These... um, uh, before we get further into the Persians, because I, I do want to read a passage, uh, another oh, sure. passage about... Um, about the Persians. But before I do that, I wanted to bring us back a little bit about, you mentioned the, the American Republic and uh, mm -hmm. comparing it to the um, to the Roman Republic. I, the way we t were talking about the Roman Republic really makes me f like think about how the way I feel about the, the, the current iteration mm -hmm. of the American Republic and even the past mm -hmm. American Republic. You know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of the past American Republic, but it definitely was functional. Mm -hmm. uh, and it certainly has shown itself to be incredibly dysfunctional uh, because it has become an empire. Mm. Um, and it was obviously set up in a, in a, to be a system for 13 colonies or mm -hmm. 13 states. And yeah. even with like a lot of land necessarily to expand, but I don't think they really planned that far ahead. Um, yeah. And that, and that set them up for, you know, it, it really, I think it's been Benjamin Franklin says it's a Republic if you can keep it. Well, mm. um, that's not going so well at the moment. And well, it also, I, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I was going to say, I, just to mention, I think, if if you had shown the founding fathers, you know, whether it's like John Adams or you know Washington or Franklin or you know whoever um, Jefferson, if you actually show if if you give them like an almanac, say that described American involvement in the in the First and Second World War and possibly the Vietnam War, I think they would have been shocked that the country <laughs> that they founded yeah. did those things. That it's like we have built an entire air force so that we can deploy to England to bomb Germany. Like we have raised you know, several divisions of Marines, you know, we have entire, you know, like armored and infantry divisions that form an army corps that's going to land on the beaches of Normandy or whilst we're doing an island hopping campaign in the Pacific and that amount of armament and essentially what would then morph into a standing army that then acted as an umbrella to, you know, in inverted commas, protect the West in the post-World War II world would have absolutely abhorred the founding fathers. That is not what they would have imagined your country to have become. Yes, exactly. So it's just the when uh, the founders or just when people who put together the original legal system or the system in general, you know, when their system is used to accomplish completely different tasks or a completely different sort of um, vision, it, it's not going to work very well, especially, you know, you can give the U.S. founders, even though begrudgingly, in my opinion, you know, some credit for creating something of a successful system uh, if for what they thought it would be. Um, but yeah, so yeah. let's yeah. move on to the Persians. You talked a little bit about um, how they, or you were talking about the uh, Achaemenian dynasty. Is that what you... Yeah, uh, uh, yeah it, it can be pronounced but Achaemenid, Achaemenid okay. doesn't, yeah, it's all the same, yeah. Uh, and they conquered their overlords. Um, and mm. then this is... Uh, Actually, funnily enough, there's like a similar story. Funnily enough, the, the, the Persians and the Romans have very... Although, for instance, there's no like 
rape story or anything in the Persian <laughs> context, but it is this, this idea of a province that is sort of considered not a backwater, but not the forefront of the empire either, either but somewhere that's sort of like an important nexus of you know, trade and influence and whatever, rebelling against its master and then becoming the absolute hegemon, not just of that specific area, but actually like of the the meta region. So the rebellion of um of Cyrus against the Medeans, uh, and then Cyrus conquers the entirety of the Median Empire, and then starts conquering its neighbors, you know, the Babylonians, the 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 the, the rump of the Assyrian states, because um, at that point, like Assyria disintegrates as a power. Um, yeah. By that point, you know, he conquers Lydia. Um, it's it's not that dissimilar story to the Romans breaking away from the Etruscans, although the Roman um expansion is a far more gradual thing i mean cyrus does it within literally his lifetime more or less yeah whereas and, for the uh, romans at least they uh didn't have to deal with such a uh sort of a tragic incitement yes ex exactly ex exactly right um although there is an instance i think if if i remember the story correctly um there's, I, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, and I, I know like some of my Persian friends are going to be annoyed. <laughs> but there's um, what is it just the... going to be? Academic agent? No, 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 no. no. I, I, it's just interesting. Like I kind of like have like a circle of friends, like Italian Twitter and Greek Twitter and Persian Twitter, and yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting how these sort of groups will coalesce. But is um, academic agent in the Persian Twitter, or is he in the? English oh no, he, or the Welsh he's probably in the, he's probably oh, probably more the English Twitter, but um. Not Wales. But, but, is there no Welsh Twitter? I have no idea. You have to ask. You have to ask the Welsh. The Welsh people. I'm. I'm not remotely Welsh. I have no idea. Um, well, but I thought you were saying you have friends in all these places. You might know. We're not. We're not Welsh Twitter. I haven't the slightest idea about Welsh Twitter. Okay. I have to claim my ignorance on that one. But um, but uh, I think there's something. If I remember this origin story correctly, um, the king, the last king of um of the Medean Empire, actually his name has just escaped for the moment i actually might just check it out but um the there's a, like a story of like a prophecy that he he gets from like a soothsayer or something uh basically sort of like oh it, it's a bit like that um you know like the the herod prophecy that sort of like oh the the man who top you will be born at this time and then you know like you know uh the the the, the jews mark the, the 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 red on their door frames you know to sort of protect them from this prophecy and i, I can't remember the actual biblical story to it but so, you know like the idea of talking about passover and then... yeah, yeah like yeah passover yeah and you know the idea of like the 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 man who topples herod will be born on this day and sure. so they protect you know, pr people protect themselves from the prophecy um yeah uh yeah um okay. So, 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 yeah, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of his name. I think it was Astyagis, I think was his name. And he was the last king of Medea. And he had this soothsayer sort of described him in this prophecy that he would be toppled. And um, and I think there was a noble that was going to, um, who was like involved in this prophecy. And uh, uh, there's there's like some sort of thing where he he forced this noble to like, eat his own son or something like prepared invited him for a banquet and then served him his own son and he was like so shocked that he then um this noble ended up like sending his other child um which was ended up being cyrus like to into the care of like some shepherd so it, so it takes into like a part of the king david narrative as well oh wow you know okay. um 
Oh, sorry, not King David. That was well, hang on in the in the reeds. Was that was that Moses or? Da- well, David was a shepherd boy. Yeah, David was a shepherd. Boy. That's right. And, uh-huh. and so anyway, the Cyrus is sort of like saved from this 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 but um. This... Moses was saved by being brought into the Egyptian royal family. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So so um so anyway, the, this uh Cyrus is kind of saved from this this predicament of you know being um like you know killed essentially because it was prophesied that he would take over from from the last king of media but it so happens that he ended up becoming the 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 call like the king but the governor of this province persis which is sort of like um it corresponds with what, what where the elamites were uh, historically which is like to the east of modern day iraq like in that southern um part of southern western part of persia um and uh and he ended up becomes the governor and then he ends up sort of rebelling against this eight now aged king of Medea, um who basically failed in stopping the prophecy from playing out so again a lot of that is sort of um you know revealed you know is, is shrouded in mythos and backstory and who knows what but it's sort of it's not as confront well i suppose i suppose rape and cannibalism are both pretty terrible yeah <laughs> you know, i guess never mind um, i i take you know, that back things, i guess though cannibalism yeah. uh yeah i don't even know how to measure that anyways yeah. uh let's... But, but, but what i'm saying is like these origin stories have commonalities right they and they're, they're sort of like they're sort of like almost legitimizing in a sense you know like for the romans they were, they, they were justified in rebelling against um the etruscans and so the persians under cyrus were sort of to a point uh were sort of gave themselves this legitimizing factor to rebel against you know you know astyages of of um of uh of the median empire and then there's like this meteoric rise and rome's is far more gradual you know there's a lot more competition to prevail in italy but then sort of like th- these two empires reach their zenith and strangely enough both become empires like the republican system in rome doesn't last it's sort of it, it atrophies as Rome expands and eventually Rome becomes an empire. But um, but Cyrus is really this first person in history who embodies this title of um, Shah Anshal, which is King of Kings. And it's yes, this idea you're that... Spoil, you're, you're just trying to spoil the reading. <laughs> so do, is there another 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 thing you want to bring up? The, the, do you want me to read the reading or not? You know, go, no, no, go. Let, let, let's, let's do it. <laughs> Okay, um, so this is in reference to um, the Persian, the way the Persians rule. Um, but where there was various preceding preceding states that had attempted to rule their subjects of various races directly, the Persians preferred to retain the services of locals called satraps, often members of the former royal family, to govern their provinces under them. This system of indirect rule was then uh, was sorry was their greatest single contribution to statecraft, and it allowed the formation of the largest governmental unit the planet had yet seen. But the central authorities could hire and fire local satraps. Since the world since the word emperor had not yet been invented, the sovereign had to content uh, content himself with the title Shah and Shah, King of Kings which he quite literally was. Moreover, his court was conducted with gorgeous ritual. So it was that ancient Persia was the actual birth 
of the imperial idea, a collection of ethnically and often religiously diverse peoples nevertheless held together by shared political loyalties. Uh, also, you had mentioned sort of, um, uh, I think the sort of the the imperial idea part of it in the Roman context, you know, why we, why did we go through all the Roman stuff was because what Rome gives you is sort of um, sort of the language of empire and then sort of the, the origin story of a Western empire from Republic to empire. Uh, while the East kind of gives you more sort of the, um, I guess, the structure of rulership of, of how it's mm -hmm. ruled. Um, and then it combined with the sort of the history of Rome, the intellectual stuff of Rome and Greece, and then the, um, the, the structure of rule of the Persians becomes the ancient sort of idea of empire. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, quite, um, what what could be said is that I think the the Greeks become the progenitors, or certainly the they they conceive of these ideas of essentially how to how to run a a Western state. But again, because with the exception of the Macedonian Empire, as in under Philip II and that later Alexander, these are all competing sort of again essentially city states fighting against each other, and they squabble for literally centuries um and obviously rome as a as its as a, as the founding republic that breaks away from etruria and the etruscans is its own city state for, for a number of centuries as well um but be, the the greeks kind of conceive of ideas of um i'd like to i'd like to resort to um how andrew wallace hadrill who's probably one of my favorite classicists as, as a greek and roman historian sort of he, he says that it's the greeks who come up with the idea of the polis you know what is it that makes a city and how does a city function and then the romans um essentially conceive of the idea of kiwitas which is this is the citizen and it's the citizens who who you know make a city it is the sort of the the civilian human component of that city so that city you know has a like an acropolis it has a has a has a gymnasium has a has a well, the romans would obviously build forums you know have an odeon or a theater you know have a library all the things that comprise of a polis physically speaking and in terms of infrastructure and um and uh don't use word facilities it's too modern but uh, you know, in terms of its institutions in a physical context, are, are conceived of by the Greeks. And then the Greeks sort of conceive of ideas of, you know, I, I, the word philosophy is a bit broad, but, you know, it's it's the Greeks who come up with a lot of original ideas of how to, um, you know, ask questions about what is a society and what society ought to be. You know, the, the, there's this line of thinkers from sort of Heraclitus all the way down to sort of Aristotle. In, in, in the in the Greek sense of themselves being independent before they were conquered by Rome, um, of of how man should think of you know the world around him and his place within the world, so to speak, and then the Romans, I suppose, take those ideas and those concepts and actually do it in a material sense. The Romans actually play it out because if the Romans had one advantage over the Greeks in this sense was that the Romans probably built up a bureaucracy that could manage 
these things in a practical sense. The Romans had this sort of judicial system that could carry out justice, right? The Romans have um, like a, a, a Senate house by which they could, and a, a, a class of people who filled the Senate, which became the governing body of that city rather than just sort of like, you know, you look at like the end of the Peloponnesian War and then, the you know, the Athenians have this, you know, the, the, the rule of the 30 and then the rule of the 400 and then they have the oligarchs and they're toppled by the, by the, Democrat, by the Democrats and then sort of they try to, um, they try to bring about like an entire um, sort of like uh, to use modern lexicon, like this sort of the liberation of the demos, you know, and that every man has, you know, a say in the, um, in the agora and you know, there's no stability. If you get what I mean, whereas like the Roman system is very consistent and very sort of stratified and layered. And they have, they have like these layers of bureaucracy that can manage the affairs of state. You know, like for instance, uh, and I've mentioned this in other streams, like at the at the point where sort of Rome goes from republic to empire, the Romans have a bureaucracy of of tens of thousands of people who just operate the aqueducts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, but that takes organization at at, mm -hmm. at, a, at a meta level that is not seen until essentially the the, the pre modern age, like you know when Prussia and Britain and and you know, the Commonwealth and America are starting to build like railway railways and highways at the national level. You know, we, we, we don't see that for, you know, the better part of one and a half millennia almost, right? And it's actually quite extraordinary. So there's the sort of like this sort of interesting dynamic that the Greeks conceive of them, these ideas, and then the Romans pragmatically play them out in the real world and manage them at the day-to-day -day level. Um, but then in the East, a credit must be given too because the only people who really do this at that imperial level is in fact the Persians and the Persians organize this. And I have to say, I'm not a specialist in Persia by any means. I really need to do more reading on the Persians, but the, the Persians do themselves have the sophisticated sort of layers of bureaucracy and management of their empire. Although what can be said is that there's a lot more decentralization and the particularly like Cyrus and his successors in order to, uh, how can I put this? Alleviate the burdens of governing such a vast empire from whether they were based in Persepolis or Pasargadae or later, you know, Susa. These, these, because Persia kind of moved the capital cities around depending, you know, where they were fighting and who they were fighting, and and even in terms of climate. Like for instance, um, that would be in Mesopotamia during the winter, and then because it got obscenely hot in the summer, that actually moved the capital up into the Zagros mountains where it was cooler. Like, so they, they were quite pragmatic in that sense, right? But um, the the Persians would delegate a lot of power to their satrapies. And I know that that's a point that you had like in your bullet points is the the idea that the Persians, in fact, for the for the sort of so-called so trade-off of um, earth and water, right? Um, that, you know, if simply a, a leader of, 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 a, of, a, of a state or, or a province or whatever, a kingdom basically gave, bent the knee to, the Shah and Shah, the, 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 the king of kings, they would govern, they would actually keep their territory, but just simply be a vassal of the of, of the Persian Empire, a vassal of the Shah. Um, and they would be more they'd be fairly autonomous, providing they sort of like provided a, a portion of their taxes to to the to the Persian Emperor and provided troops when called upon. Because when you actually, for example, read about like uh, Alexander's battles against um Darius, uh, I think Darius the Third. Um, you know, he fights him at Gradicus, Issus, and Gorgomela. 
you read about the let's say for example like the macedonian phalanx and you know like the these troops are for, you know these peltasts come from here this cavalry comes from there and then alexander has his macedonian com companions it's a very sort of like greco-macedonian army it's very particularly the first half of his campaign is very much you know if they're not strictly macedonians and they're at the very least all ethnic greeks but the, the the Persian army comparatively, it's like oh, there's Cappadocian cavalry, there's you know there's Kurdish javelineers, there's you know there's there's Indian light horse, there's you know a core of Persian infantry, there's actually a big core of um, Greek mercenaries that fight alongside the Persian army. There's you know there's contingents from Syria, there's you know there's um there's contingents from you know there's like Ar Armenian infantry, there's like all these uh, there's Bactrian uh, heavy cavalry, there's you know um, there's a uh, you know, like all, all uh, you know, I suppose like Arab swordsmen, call it what you wish, but there's all these component parts that sort of contribute to the imperial army, and they're all very disparate contingents. Um, so you very much have this uh, uh, juxtaposition, this sort of dimorphism between the two sides. One is extremely sort of diverse and drawn from all corners of an empire, and then the other one is very ethnocentric and very sort of unified in identity and purpose and you know language and organization. So that's an interesting sort of differentiation between them. Indeed, there are sort of that, that interesting dynamic. And in some sense, there will be empires that are, uh, as you say, sort of monolithic, monolithic in that way. And then you have the other empires which have this sort of great um, diversity amongst the peoples, uh, you know, in the future. And it, the, I guess you sort of have to, there's a balance to that. And, you know, some, some, sometimes that's out of necessity. Sometimes it's just out of happenstance uh, that that comes about. Quite exactly. Um, but, but it's kind of interesting that as, as Alexander marches eastward, and conquers more of Persian, eventually does conquer the Persian in, 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 in its entirety outright. Um, Alexander actually adopts more sort of Eastern modes and Eastern methods of, of kingship to the point where he actually starts to attempt to appeal to his new Persian subjects to the point where he actually starts to alienate his former like Greek allies and actually a number of his um comrades in arms i mean there's instances where even for instance in terms of uh, in terms of arguing with um with with his uh his peers like he um you know he, in a drunken rage i think he ends up impaling um is it uh i always i always say um uh Hephaestion, but it's not him he 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 dies uh i think of illness but um it might be like I think Clytius, the the white, or Clytius the blank, one of the Clytiuses, and uh, yeah, like just in a drunken rage, he throws a javelin at him and kills him, <laughs> you know, because oh. it's it's some of these Greek, because some of some of these Greek commanders have been with him since the start, are basically saying you are no longer Greek, Alexander, like you you, know, you are becoming the thing that you sought to conquer, you know, we are Greeks, you've, you've gone native, pride. you've gone native, you know, in the end, we are we are men who are proud of our heritage and proud of you know our traditions and. You know, now you're adopting Persian dress. You've taken a Persian wife, and you know you want to marry all these Greek officers with Persian women. And like, you know, what's actually happening here? Basically, it's kind of like, uh, like a, an enforced D, DEI policy of like antiquity, <laughs> right? Um, antiquity DEI. Uh, well, essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, but, it, yeah. it's still, you'd argue, it would have, it would have worked a little. It would have worked better than DEI works today. Um, 
I mean, I'm drawing a long bow there. I'm just sort of yeah, I know. It. But, but, I but know, the but idea it. of essentially like yeah. a, a forced diversity between Greek and Macedonian components and Persian, um, you know, which which to a point kind of actually succeeded because Alexander's successor states that sort of followed the crumble, like after his death, his empire crumbled and you know, a number of his generals like took a portion each. It's actually why, to a point, the Seleucid Empire survived as long as it did because, you know, for, for, for a number of decades, even like one might say a, a century or two, this sort of amalgam of Greek and Persian culture actually existed in parts of Mesopotamia, parts of Syria, parts of even Western Iran, where some of that integration already taken place. But because of the instability of the world at that point in time, and then the fact that, again, there was a, a, something of a migratory wave, you know, you have the, the, the Parthians and the steppe people gaining st a head of steam in the east and the north, and then the Romans of this burgeoning power, they actually overrun the Greek homeland and eventually come into contact um, with the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire, etc. They kind of get squeezed out and lose these territories. But it is an interesting thing that Alexander attempted um, and given the size of his empire, he had to do something like that. You know, you, it, it, it would be because even like say with the Romans, they didn't do it in the same way, and their their expansion was far more gradual than either Cyrus's or Alexander's. But this is why the Romans used to have like you know colonia. You know, they would disband a group of legions and put them in this city that was in a foreign province. And then obviously, you know, years would go by and those men would integrate with the local population and they would integrate with the Romans and there would be this gradual process of assimilation that the Romans actually proved the system worked because even in the modern day, there's a reason why Spaniards and Italians are very similar. <laughs> yeah. So. No, it, ma it makes a lot of sense. Uh, back a little bit to satraps. In my opinion, it's kind of the uh, the predecessors to princes, you know, sort of the way we think of modern uh, prince or sort of, I guess, uh, not modern, more like medieval princes and their role in empires. Um, you have sort of the, you know, you have an emperor and then you might have some kings and then sort of a little lesser, you'd have princes having... Uh, authority over a, a smaller realm uh but also having influence uh it it sort of in my opinion sort of comes from satrapies does that make this is that accurate um honestly uh, to, to to answer that question i think i probably have to do more reading about persia because i i don't know enough about the actual persian system the real nuts and bolts of the the, the system of satrapies to really answer that question um although it wouldn't surprise me if there was something of a, of a link between them i think i think though the system of the satrapies was try try and ponder this because on one hand you've got like this oriental when i say oriental i'm talking in the context of how europeans saw the near east you know like, like i said to you when we before we went to record you know it, the greek word anatolia which is the is what they is what up until recent times we call the geographical region where monday turkey is right like the, the the asiatic part of turkey the greeks call it anatolia which in greek means land to the east because it's mm -hmm. you know the half of the Aegean is east of Greece proper. Um, so, you know, Asia Minor, Near East, call it what you want, right? But the, the, this this idea of sort of like Eastern, um, uh, I'm trying to think of even how Andrew Wallace Adriel describes like Eastern potentates, like styles of governing and and Oriental notions of, of kingship and rulership um, undoubtedly do influence the West. 
they influence Alexander to some point they influence even Caesar and Mark Antony via Cleopatra and Egypt um, to some degree Augustus kind of does this when he becomes emperor but it's still very much with you know like a a, a Greco-Roman overtone but then if we sort of fast forward through in history when Diocles establishes the tetrarchy and establishes what he what we call because that's where the system built by Augustus is called the Principate which his title princeps means first among equals which was obviously not true because he was the emperor but that was the pr campaign that basically augustus ran with but then <laughs> once diocles and uh, becomes diocletian becomes emperor and leads the tetrarchy it becomes the dominate i mean this is like the Roman word dominus basically means lord right mm -hmm. um like a dominus and a domino that's a male and fe feminine in, in latin and like the dominus is the, the lord and the emperor you know without comparison there's no there's no sort of messing about with this idea of first among equals like no this is your emperor and it's a stratified society and he governs you and rules you and you know you do what the emperor tells you with and you know without any you know frills attached um and, and that is drawn from an eastern inspiration that is actually uh you know like i said uh the description used amongst uh sort of roman historians uh, and i think it was wallace hadrill who did use phraseologies like you know, eastern potentates it's the idea of styles of eastern rulership that are then imposed on the west the idea that sort of any notion of you know uh, um i hate to use the word again but like the, the this kind of like this thread of egalitarianism that runs in in western philosophy is just blotted out by the idea of just like an absolute autocracy of an, of an emperor who rules from on high uh which then sort of impacts later on when you sort of have the breakup of west rome and the rise of like the, the barbarian kingdoms which become like the nascent france nascent england the nascent castilian spain you know burgundy etc it's the idea of divine right of kings um which is tempered by sort of ideas of you know noblesse oblige and you know this this sort of the the estates of the realm and you know the you have the various sort of classes that fulfill each role but then you've got what is it the the um the king the nobles and the people and they sort of sit within this sort of self-sufficient and um mutually supportive triangle which doesn't quite exist in the eastern very much the same way but you know you what i'm saying is you sort of you see this amalgam of of of, of greek influence of roman influence of persian influence sort of converging in this sort of ideal that we could sort of start to describe as divine right i suppose okay yeah that makes a lot of sense but it's, but it's definitely derivative from that transition that diocletian carries out which is then you might say centralized by constantine which then of course as we get to like the christianization of rome it it, it becomes formalized as a part of even our religious thinking right yeah as so, Christians. so very indirect if anything but at least you can see sort of some um hints of what's to come at least with satraps um and then I want to uh, bring this a little bit to sort of the um, uh, is uh, ancient Israelite um, and uh, Judean history uh, with the Davidic kingship because we there's obviously a lot of sort of the empire stuff has a lot more of its origins in sort of ancient pagan um, country or uh, empires and you know, with Rome and stuff like that. But there's also, uh, especially with Constantine and with Theodosius and other 
emperors in the future as the Roman Empire becomes Christian, much of sort of the, there or there are influences from sort of the Davidic kingship and you know mostly with Solomon it's it's really kind of alluded to and not very well gone into I guess in the in the Bible regarding mm-hmm. Solomon's reign Solomon you know is granted wisdom by God and that leads him to uh, great conquests and successes uh where he becomes much far, far wealthier than he uh, probably was good for him. And he eventually conquers a bunch of people and marries uh, many. He get has many, many wives of, of pagan uh, uh, countries outside of his, or even a part of his new lands that he conquered. And I want, this is kind of an example of, how you know sort of uh judean and sort of christian morality comes into sort of maybe balancing out at least in the future of the imperial idea because solomon is shown to have sort of lost who he was kind of in the same way alexander does um i don't know if you would you agree with that does that sound similar I don't know enough about Solomon to be able to um to comment on that, but I I'm also isn't it true to some degree that it, actually David kind of lost his way through his he, kingship as well. He did, but uh, the the difference between him and Solomon is that he repented, um, okay. and that Solomon never did. So uh, Solomon remained unrepentant, so to speak. Yeah, Solomon okay. never had. He he lost his. Um, he became basically. Uh, like a pagan king by the end mm-hmm. of his reign because he so he had married all these women from different um of di- who had all these different gods and he he took the temple that he had made uh for for the uh for the Israelite god uh and basically added altars for other pagans other pagan deities um in that same temple hmm, interesting yeah like I said, i'm not, not sort of familiar enough with solomon to be able to have commented but yeah I, I do think there's an interesting sort of intersection here in the and and i think if you i actually haven't i actually need to get back to reading aquinas because i haven't I haven't read aquinas for literally years now sort of at least since i was at I was at uni, which is, you know, over 10 years ago. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's an interesting kind of intersection between, shall we say, call it Greco-Roman philosophy um, and sort of what one might des- describe as, you know, so like Socratic principles or Aristotelian sort of ideals. And then it being sort of those ideas being sort of cast through a sort of a, a Christian a moral a christian a moral christian kind of um mesh that sort of gives them a a non-paganistic angle as it were or or, you know like a a non-paganistic moral dimension which otherwise it wouldn't have had which is i think where the idea of say noblesse oblige will come from like the idea of just you don't have power for the sake of having power but as a king or as a as a as a noble of some kind you know whether it was baron or an earl or a duke or whatever a, a crown prince or whatever you know your your station might be 
as a member of the nobility is that, okay, you have these privileges, but you also have duties and responsibilities. And say, for example, um, even if you go outside of the, because I'm trying to think the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, uh, certainly past the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, if you look at, say, uh, Wolfstone, who um, who wrote the, the, the Saxon laws, the laws for King Ethelred. I'm pretty, yeah, yeah, the 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 Saxons would have been Christian by then. But even in that context, it's these Germanic tribal laws that are still sort of um, interpreted through a Christian dimension. So, as say, as a, as an Anglo-Saxon earl or a baron of, of you know somewhere in England, you know, like Kent or you know Norfolk or wherever Somerset. You know, you had to bring your your retinue to to battle to serve under the English king, and as a lord, you were compelled to lead your men courageously in battle. And you know, if you were if you were sort of hard pressed or wounded, you could give ground, but you could never retreat. And you know, to abandon your lord or even your soldiers um, by fleeing was basically a an offense punishable by death it's like yes you're given this this response this this privilege of ruling over these people in these lands and this to use the saxon phraseology a third which is you know like a, a basically a war band of, of soldiers but with that became the responsibility of defending your territory and defending your lord um you know the, the king and you would lead these men and you couldn't abandon them in battle and to do so basically you're either banished forever and you surrendered all your property or if you return to the kingdom you'd be executed like it's it's very black and white as to what these responsibilities are and these sort of these this balancing out of privileges with responsibilities and duties which i think is in many ways if not uniquely christian at the very least relatively uniquely european or at least i think there's aspects of both you know like there's there's certain aspects of the Roman ideal. I, I mentioned the Mos Maiorum earlier in the stream, and you know, the idea that you know, you know, for the Romans they would, um, uh, they place a lot of importance on on virtues such as you know, disciplina, discipline, you know, constantia, the ability to be sort of constant and 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 upright, you know, in all situations, you know, to have gravitas, which means seriousness and composure, you know, um, you know, all these sort of various virtues, um, and and and, uh, and then you know going back to what I was saying about like Wolfson and, and the Saxon laws, um, there's this kind of interesting intersection where sort of like some of these old hallowed traditions that predate Christianity kind of bubble under the surface and even kind of like blend in with Christian morality. And then we sort of end up with kind of this chivalric code of the, of the early and high middle ages. You know, we, we end up with these sort of ideas of noblesse oblige and the idea of like divine right of Kings, but it's not just, and, and again, this is probably one of the gripes I sort of have with how, the modern world views world words like dictator you know it's just like oh if it's one person who rules it's a bad thing it's just like well actually what we have today is the aberration of, of human history <laughs> most rule has been done by a single person throughout the vast extent of human history and in fact in most places where they've had civilization china persia egypt greece rome wherever right mm -hmm. um but but the but something interesting happens in europe and amongst european civilizations that i don't think actually has comparison elsewhere Certainly not to the same degree. I mean, the, the Japanese do conceive of the code of Bushido, but that's more of like a warrior code for a particular strata of people that didn't necessarily apply to like the shogun or the emperor, um, who again would almost 
given like almost like carte blanche to do whatever the hell they wanted whereas in the west very much different a different um it's taken in a very different context but just to circle back to the judean question just very briefly um i think uh i think uh it's interesting that you raised well i solomon but you know david and solomon and the idea that um you know you do have this this interesting system where sort of judea is strangely stratified in that you sort of have like the you know the, the pharisees and the sadducees and these very sort of like religious sects who kind of sort of sit underneath the king and a sort of like a, a priest class as it were that existed above the 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 well i say that the jewish people but you know there's a, the, the, i'm not the, sure the, that would be under i don't think that's what it was but, under the davidic kingship though that would have been I mean, under that would have been the herodianism yeah the herodians dynasty yeah 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 true but what i'm saying is like it eventually ended up being that right and um you know yeah. and obviously if, if we call the people of judea to be the descendants of the 12 tribes you know from the from the old testament um well judea would just be two two of the tribes i think uh that being judah and israel uh judah and benjamin well benjamin yeah okay yeah yeah so so that yeah exactly and um and so it's uh because I'm I'm not I'm not actually this way someone like Lambda would probably be useful because I know Lambda Lambda's done a lot of Old Testament reading and actually sort of understanding the the dynamic of how you know like Judea and the the the, the people of Israel sort of like operated at that time. Um, it's not really my forte, but it's it's it's, it's sort of interesting in so far that obviously you know in Christianity we obviously include the Old Testament in our book and then we sort of have like you know revelation that sort of conveyed through Jesus. And we have the New Testament and you know, the Gospels mm-hmm. and that. sort of of stuff that sort of becomes essentially the basis for for our morality but like i said before if i circle back when i look at either um diocletian and constantine or whether i look at say the evolution of germanic law like in the northern europe you know amongst um the anglo-saxons or even like the germanic the the teutons as like a, a group of germanic peoples um and then the Franks is kind of like an amalgam of the Germanic peoples and Mediterranean Roman, Gallo, Gallo-Roman peoples. Yeah, there's a, an interesting thing sort of plays out in a civilizational sense where you sort of have this old world morality that predates Christianity that sort of intersects with Christianity and you kind of get a, a melding of these two systems which sort of creates our, our medieval conception of morality and, and, and law and governance that sort of then percolates to almost the modern age. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's interesting because so the what I was going to say about sort of Solomon and uh, sort of the whole point of why Israel could not become an empire really was because it it was basically the the belief system, the structure of the belief system was mainly geared towards um, uh, towards Jews and it wouldn't be until uh, Christ that sort of the belief in um, sort of uh, one God, um, the the Trinity, and uh, would then um, bring the well Christianity would bring what was the Jewish ideas, and then this um, the fulfillment of those ideas into Christianity. Uh, would bring that to the rest of the world. It was originally sort of a um, a single people religion, and now it is a religion for all the nations. And Solomon, when he tried, when he was embracing other pieces of culture, 
he was falling victim into sort of becoming uh, a pagan himself. But when Christ comes, uh, Christians are able to sort of, because they are culturally of different varieties, they are able to sort of baptize their cultures into um, something new. And, um, and basically, that is where Christian kingship, Christian uh, empire becomes possible. While un- under uh, the Davidic kingship prior, it would probably it would be impossible. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't really have much to add add to that. In in because again, like I don't don't quite know enough about that period from from uh, the uh, the standpoint of the sort of kingdom of, of David and Solomon. But yeah, no, I that what you said does make a good deal of sense. Um, what I would say is that I so yeah, in so your, that's how I sort of what? Oh no, I was going to say that in your opinion, how much of the legacy of the morality from say that uh, Davidian period? do you feel remains intact or carries on sort of like a natural evolution to the Herodian period? Do you sort of see the, the society and their their sort of moral frameworks change much in that time? And you got to think like between the two, you actually have, you know, several occupations of Judea, you know, the, they're conquered by the Assyrians and then they're conquered by Cyrus. And then obviously they, they're conquered by Alexander, um, and then you have the the the, Mac- the wars of the you know the Maccabees etc. Um, and then Herod sort of becomes a vassal of, of Rome to some extent. So do you, do you sort of feel there's much of a change in 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 Judean society from one to the other? In your opinion, I mean, I think the classical understanding, the classical cr- classical Christian understanding, is that the law was maintained, the moral law of Moses was maintained. Um, it was obviously very Hellenized too, because um, they'd been ruled by Greeks and there were the Maccabean revolts and all of that. Um, But there was the law, but I mean, I think sort of one of the critiques Jesus makes is that they weren't following the spirit of the law. Um, and I, so in a sense, since the, the spirit of the morality was not being followed, but they might, they would have been following the letter of the law, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And do you think also to some degree, there's also a point where, cause I did also mention like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and like, there's obviously other groups that exist at the time of Herod that because the priest class in um, the society of the Israelites was so pre- preeminent. Like, put it this way, the, the Romans, for instance, actually had a, a, although religion played a part to some degree in the in law insofar that it was a guiding principle to, to how the Romans practiced their law, there was a distinction between, you know, like Roman lawyers. Like, for instance, Cicero was a lawyer before he became a senator and the practice of law through a system of of the judicial process, which sort of the Romans themselves kind of conceived of. Basically, the idea of a Western judicial system comes from Rome, right, and and, and the courts that Rome actually established. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, in, in from, from what I understand, even like, you know, reading through the, the Bible and you sort of like read the Gospels, it kind of feels like the, the, uh, the Israelite sort of religious sects and their, their 
um, I suppose you'd consider them like essentially the, the Pharisees are essentially like a, a, a proto-Rabbanic, you know, the, the, the pre-Rabbis insofar that they're like a religious um, like layer essentially to their society, that they actually had a lot more involvement in terms of interpreting law, um, like intersecting with law um, and to some degree probably like interfered with if you could use the description, the judicial process, like, far more than you'd see in like the greek or roman system yeah i'm not i so i'm not really sure how the roman um system worked with like with the fact that there was kind of this subsystem under herod and under the uh sanhedrin but from what i understand sort of about the because they're the problem with like or the confusing part i think about um Jewish law was that there was multiple different sort of sets of laws. There was the uh, Levitical law, there was uh, De Deuteronomy, um, you know, these were different set sets up for different reasons. And the strictness really was out of the fact that the Jews kept or the Hebrews kept failing and from what I can tell is that, yes, from a sort of social uh, situation, definitely the religious leaders had a lot to say with this because the they were the ones who basically brought Christ to um, trial. Like they, they could not put him to death, but it's almost sort of uh, outside the, the law in some sense, like they couldn't do certain things because they weren't in charge of everything, but they took it upon themselves to enforce rules according to their interpretation of Levitical and Deuteronomy law. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Um, yeah, I have nothing more to add to that. Okay. Uh, I, I just think it's sort of like interesting how these, you know, it, it's funny how like different geographies produce sort of different people have different interpretations of these things. Like it's a really interesting kind of case study almost from an anthropological standpoint. You know, I mean, I'm no expert, for instance, in like law and governance or anything, right? I just read history and tell, talk about it. But it's kind of interesting how in a relatively small geographical sort of area, you know, you, you have the, the different systems developed by, you know, the Celts and the Germans and then the Romans and the Greeks and then, you know, the, the Israelites and the Persians and the Assyrians and, and Egypt. And it's, it's all very different models. And sometimes there's actually quite significant cross-pollination between them. I just, I find it endlessly fascinating. Yeah, definitely. So, and Christ comes and provides uh, the, uh, you know, because he is the, uh, heir to David. So while Herod is uh, not of the Davidic line, uh, Jesus is. He is the um, he is the basically the king of Israel, the king of, uh, of of Judea, but just not in not in title or not. I guess not enthroned uh, from a sort of um, from a physical standpoint, uh, and that's why. Herod, you know, the first Herod or Herod, I can't remember what his title is, but uh, the first Herod, you know, tries to have him killed. Um, and then uh, it's interesting. So there's uh, Joseph, you know, St. Joseph, uh, uh, Jesus's um, 
adoptive father or earthly father um, is, uh, you know, is interest or interestingly enough, basically dead by the time Jesus goes out and preaches and, you know, preaches the gospels, which I think has a lot to do with the fact that he becomes the head of the house of David at that time. There's this very much sort of king kingship aspect to it is he would not be the king until he, until Joseph died because Joseph was the heir up until, um, up until his death. So it's yeah, kind of head of house, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Head of house, head of the house, but I mean, a penniless head of house kind yeah. of, yeah. uh, in some sense, how well, a lot, a lot of people tend to forget that Jesus was a carpenter, a humble carpenter. Like it's, you know. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's interest, um, but the kind of the way we think of a lot of royalty these days that have been overthrown, or you know, at least you know, every time the Habsburgs keep having their um, property seized by whichever government, you know, the last one was the Nazis, and they haven't been given their uh, their stuff back. Um, so, as uh, Charles Coulomb likes to say, sort of, uh, they still have Nazi loot. Uh, the Austrian government still has mm -hmm. Nazi loot, but won't uh, give it back to the Habsburgs, um, their mm -hmm. um, their property. So that's one thing, uh, which I think that's the only thing that probably our media will like look and be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, the Nazis did that. Well, you know, they probably had a good reason for it. Like, that's the only thing they yeah. ever say that about. But of course, you know, yeah. people wouldn't mention most people don't mention it anyways. But the, 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 the unfortunate thing for the Habsburgs is that they were emperors in Europe and they weren't central bankers. But anyway, <laughs> many such cases. Anyways, so the uh, so basically you have sort of the penniless king um, and his example with like the washing of the feet uh, and um, just sort of and self-sacrificing or mm -hmm. self-sacrificial um sort of uh, gives sort of the examples for Christian kingship. And that would be also Christian emperor emperors as well going forward. And then we get to Constantine, uh, Constantine. So uh, are you familiar with the story of like the, um, the sign he saw and the dream he had and that sort of thing? Yeah, the, uh, the Kiro and the Milvian Bridge. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm familiar with the. Okay, will you mind? Story, yeah. uh, will you mind enlightening us? Well, yeah. So um, at this point in time, so I'll, I'll give it just a little bit of of, of background. So Vespa uh, Vespasian, um, Diocletian comes to power at the head of a coup after the death of Emperor Numerian, and Diocletian is sort of at the head of a of a cadre of veteran officers from the Roman army very, and rather than being bureaucratic, they're from a military background. They completely understand that Rome is ungovernable from Rome as in the empire is ungovernable from, from one place. And there's far too much, um, uh, shall I say like bureaucratic and administrative, um, sort of burden for one person to control. So, um, he establishes what they call the Tetrarchy rule of a rule of four. It actually begins as a rule of two, but then that's insufficient. And so they, they establish a rule of four. So there's uh, Diocletian and Gale and his deputy Galerius in the east, and then 
it's Constantine's father, uh, uh, Flavius Constantius, and uh, trying to think who the who his partner was in the West, uh, father of Maximian, but I've just gone blank. Or Maxentius. Anyway, I can't remember. It, it, all the names start to sort of like gel together when you when you sort of go through them all. But eventually, uh, what actually happens is that Constantine, whose son? Sorry. Oh, I, I always get mixed up between Maxentius and Maximian, but. Anyway, I always forget who's who's the father and who's the son, because they're they're basically the deputy in the West under um, Constantine's father, Constantine Maximinus or something. Oh, anyway, yeah, so something like that. Um, anyway, I, I'm pretty sure the person that um, that uh, Constantine defeats at um, at Milvan Bridge is actually Maxentius. But anyway, um, the 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 point is that because he's a son of a general, and and this system is not meant to be um or hereditary he ends up serving in the court of the east and ends up being a very successful uh he i think he believes i believe he commands a legion for for diocletian slash galerius in the east and actually leads many successful campaigns you know against um against the persians in the east and against the goths beyond the danube and he's actually famed as a, as a very successful and a very tenacious general um but then he eventually escapes his um his position in the eastern court and utilizing the the roman sort of uh, essentially the, the imperial messaging service he just goes from uh, like post to post picking up fresh horses he rides hell for leather across the empire and eventually to his father's court because his father is about to prepare a campaign into um oh you've dropped out anyway i'll keep going um uh Maxenti uh, uh constantine makes his way to modern day york which was the roman city of aboricum and uh his father's about to execute a campaign to go against the um to campaign against the picts beyond hadrian's wall but flavius constantius actually dies not long after Con uh, constantine arrives so constantine's basically proclaimed um the deputy emperor in the west by the constantius as soldiers and sort of the fate accompli Sorry, Connor, I kept going. You dropped out, so I just kept talking about... Yep, constantly. just continue. Sure. Um, so basically, he escapes his his position at the um, in court in the east uh, under Galerius and and, uh, and uh, Diocletian, and he rides hell for leather across the empire, makes his way to York where his father's based, because his father's based in Britannia, uh, but he's about to engage in a campaign with the Picts who sort of populate modern-day Scotland, and he... Constantine makes his way to York where his father's gathering the army for campaign, but his father actually dies not long after Constantine arrives in the city. His father doesn't even start the campaign. And it's Constantius' soldiers who pronounce Constantine as an emperor. And Diocletian designed the system to be non-hereditary. But because essentially Constantine is now at the, at the head of his father's army, almost by accident, all the other emperors in the Tetrarchy sort of accept as a fait accompli that Constantine is emperor, and they really can't reverse it. You know he can't be unappointed essentially uh and then sort of you have this this uh this sort of power play diocletian goes into retirement galerius becomes the chief emperor the augustus in the in the in the east he brings in a successor uh to sort of fulfill his old position i believe it's licinius if memory says me correct who was a general uh, another roman general and uh and then in the west um power shared between constantine and then Maxentius and 
eventually things come to a head between Constantine and Maxentius, where Constantine marches down through Italy and attempts to sort of become the 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 absolute sort of control of the Western uh, Roman world. And interestingly enough, Constantine's actually outnumbered. Um, I think only just, but he's he's just outnumbered. He has to sort of cross which in sort of military terms is difficult to actually cross a river and defeat an enemy army who sort of has a defensive advantage but it's basically said that constantine had a vision in the in the in the um in the clouds in the sky just on the outskirts of rome um and it was like a symbol essentially of a, of, of the greek symbol the kiro which is the two um the two first letters of christ's name in greek which is the the chi symbol the ki and then ro, which is the, we would recognize it as a P in English, but it's those two letters intersected, which is the the Christian labrum, the signal of what we call the kiro. That's that's where that signal comes from. He sees that in the sky, illuminated in the clouds. And I forget what the Greek translation of it is, but in Latin, it says, in, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign conquer. And then he instructs his men to paint the labrum on their shield, and then his army deploys for battle at Milvian Bridge, and you can actually still you can actually see the Milvian Bridge today. It's still there in in, in you know on the outskirts of Rome, um, and Maxentius's army just evaporates on contact. The battle is to, to describe how the sources basically say it, it's bloody and as a brief. Um, Constantine completely outmaneuvers Maxentius, and Maxentius is uh, attempts to retreat across a, 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 the, the Tiber to basically make his way to Rome and he drowns in the river um, and his army just disintegrates on contact. And then after the battle, they just run to the hills and essentially Constantine offers an amnesty uh, to anyone who is prepared to join him and basically incorporates the surviving elements of Maxentius army into his own. And in a very short space of time, he becomes master of the Roman, the West Roman world. And it's at that point where, um, cause I believe at this point, Constantine's mother, who we know in in sort of in, in Christian terms as Saint Helena or Saint Helen, is already a practice, practicing Christian. She's already a member of the church, uh, and Constantine is beginning to be persuaded as to the the virtues and to the you might say the the truth of Revelation, um, and this becomes increasingly true throughout his life. Although Constantine doesn't live a particularly Christian life as we might understand it in a in a moral sense. But he's he's gradually persuaded by, um, at least at the surface level, he's persuaded by the arguments that are offered to him by the Christians via the 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 old ways, the old religion of Rome, the old Hellenic pantheon, so to speak. Indeed, yeah. And then uh, Saint Helena and Constantine bring a lot of uh, relics from the Holy Land to Rome, uh, like Pilate's steps. I think are you know, in, um, in Rome because of the, because of them, if I'm not mistaken. And I think they find the true cross and that sort of thing. Anyway, so there's a lot of, um, interesting elements that come about because of Constantine and Constantine does, is it the edict of Milan, which makes the edict uh, of Milan? Yeah. That, that's the legalization or rather the de essentially the decriminalization of Christianity, I suppose you'd call it because it has to be said that the, the as time has gone on in, in throughout Rome, and we actually see this under uh, uh, Emperor Decius or Decius, 
Um, once Rome starts to become inundated with plagues, they sort of tend to the Christians tend to get scapegoated for all these disasters that befall Rome. Like, and and we have to understand that Diocletian and his peers, uh, and this process even begun under one of his predecessors, uh, Probus, um, of stabilizing stabilizing the empire happened in the course of what we call the third century crisis which basically rome almost ended two and two two and a half centuries before it actually eventually ended up falling uh the crisis was a very very trying time for rome and at this point in time christianity became a somewhat popular movement in particularly say for example in the aegean in egypt um parts of syria and even in parts of say southern italy and spain christianity started gaining something of a following and so it was kind of felt that this um, sort of religious sect that was sort of bubbling underneath the surface of Roman society was be becoming something of a problem. And so emperors such as Decius, uh, particularly Constantine and, and very much Galerius as well, undertook essentially pogroms against the, the Christian uh, minority in the, within the empire, which then Constantine kind of reverses this first with the Edict of M Milan, which essentially is the the legalization or the decriminalization of the practice of the Christian religion. And then eventually sort of as the ostensible head of the church, although he's not technically, um, he's not technically Pope, but as sort of like the, the <laughs> imperial head of the, of the Christian church, he, uh, at the, at the, he sort of masterminds eventually the council of Nicaea. Yeah. Formalization of the church. Official, like um, head layman kind of thing. Yeah. You could call um, it that. Yeah. Cause uh, that tradition actually continues on like in the Greek world like after the fall of west rome latin rome and as the byzantine continues the the byzantine empire continues in the east center around constantinople the byzantine emperor and the patriarch of constantinople maintain this relationship for the duration of the byzantine empire so it's I a mean, really interesting dynamic that happens it continues up until you could say the uh the uh night uh the 20th century the beginning of the 20th century with the of paper the veto of one of the elections of a pope uh um in like the early in like early 1900s i think it was uh, true true but i mean this in in so far that the you know, like say for example in the west for example there's very much this certainly up until the period of the reformation the counter-reformation and the you know the, the the whole protestant movement under luther is that you know there's very much this idea of okay kings and and princes and 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 the the western nobility are subs in in a sense of at least spiritually subservient to the pope in rome you know that the pope in rome wielded a lot of um i mean he, he did wield some temporal power but it was very much you know a case of your rule is ordained by god but essentially god functions through me as the pope ergo you know don't step out of line otherwise as the pope you know you'll be excommunicated you know like there's a mm -hmm. there's a bit of that that went on a lot of that but that went on in the middle ages whereas in the east in constantinople there's very much this peer-to-peer -peer relationship between the patriarch and the emperor mm -hmm. that lasts for as long as that empire does live and basically once the empire emperor was the last emperor was killed at the siege of constantinople and then once the patriarch of constantinople sort of fell under the auspices of the the sultan as he was essentially used as the head of the Greek community within the empire. That dynamic forever changes, you know, like there's not that yeah. peer to peer relationship anymore. Um, but uh, what the point I was making is that it's very interesting how this relationship that begins under Constantine and sort of whilst Rome is still unified, starts this trend. And then that trend then carries on in the East is, I suppose, the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I guess it's more um, the Pope has a little bit of an edge maybe in the West. Um 
when it when the when Rome falls um, in the West and doesn't in the East. Uh, do you think have we missed anything with sort of the uh, imperial origins of, or the origins of the imperial idea? I should say, is there anything not else? That, that... Not, not, not that I can think of. Um, but, I mean, in the end, it's sort of like because we've sort of touched back on Constantine and um, and Diocletian. Is it a very much is a hinge point? You know, you can really say that the the establishment. Because I mean, we actually haven't talked a whole lot about Augustus. Kind of just mentioned him in passing recently. Oh yes, in this stream. But you know, the idea of Augustus establishes this first Western Imperium. Because we have to think that okay, the Etruscans had kings, but they were kind of like very informally kings, and they appointed kings to Rome as a, to act as like a, a vassal sort of overlord. But you know. Like, for example, Vercingetrix wasn't actually really a king of the Gauls insofar that he was sort of like an elected leader of the Gauls as a confederation fighting, you know, Caesar, Caesar's legions as, as like the, the preeminent general of the Roman Republic. Um, you know, and, and even like the Samnites themselves actually had a very similar system to the Romans of sort of being governed by by two rulers at any given time. They weren't consuls in the same way that Rome was, but, you know, again, it was sort of like a diarchy. You know, Sparta had the rule of two kings. Um, some Greek city-states actually had oligarchies uh, such, and, and obviously Macedon had a king as well. But it's sort of not, it's not particularly common. It's not everywhere. Whereas, like, you know, we said before, you know, like in the East, you know, the, the Lydians had a king, the Cappadocians had a king, you know, the, the Mitanni had a king. You know the 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 Assyrian the Assyrians had kings the Babylonians had kings you know it, it's a very common thing in the East, and so you sort of have like this stepped kind of ascendancy towards the establishment of of both kingship and imperium in the West, and it's Augustus creates this idea of it's called princeps you know first among equals, but he becomes the emperor of Rome you know imperator as a term in older history in older roman history like in republican rome imperator was simply a word used for general it was almost um you could almost use it in the same way that the greeks even today use the word strategos which means you know general essentially right um but then the imperator became essentially the emperor and it's it's how we've come to refer to as the empire so, you know it's essentially where we get the etymology for the word empire and imperial is from imperator um yet yet we that, uh we get in uh in other languages emperor um comes more from C uh caesar well yeah i was gonna say you have czar and kaiser um which are descendant of the word caesar but that's because caesar becomes a rank um firstly uh in many ways the early emperors if you look at said the julio claudian dynasty i mean we have you know we call them by you know they're, they're augustus and tiberius and caligula and nero and whatever we call them Claudius, we call them as they are but if you actually look at their full names it's you know like caesar you know caesar augustus you know julius claudius you know it's like a it's like a, it's like a four five six letter uh, word sort of title that sort of the encompasses the entire naming of that person you know um and so they incorporate caesar and augustus into their names which becomes a part of their title essentially and so um and you really see this particularly in Byzantium where they, they actually end up having a lot of titles for a lot of different ranks, both in terms of the government of, of, the, of the empire, but also within the court. And so in, in Byzantium, you would have uh, the emperor, uh, I think this was after uh, Her Heraclius, 
um, he sort of changes the Latin to Greek, right? Because it's actually during his reign where the transformation happens linguistically, at least it, it's formalized, right? But the, it, they're no longer, they don't use the word imperator, they use the word basileos, which in Greek means, you know, we would say, you know, basileus in English. But essentially it's the same thing, but it's just in Greek. Um, but they would use words like, uh, for example, I think the full title, the part of the full title of the Byzantine emperor was autocrator of Greeks and Romans, essentially. So Vasileus and autocrator could be used interchangeably. But then at the same time, it was still referred to as an emperor, empire in that if you look at the way the Greeks described their own entity, Vasileia ton Romeon, empire of Romans, right? It's just that it's just a difference in like a, a, essentially like transliteration, like using the Greek rather than the Latin, right? But the, the, the words are the same. But then at the same time, um, Augustus, which is the Greek translation of Augustus, is still used in documentation. It's just used interchangeably like autocrat or Augustus could be substituted to mean the same thing. But a an emperor's successor or an emperor's son would be given the title Caesar, Caesar. Mm. And so it's from that that we essentially get this idea that in places like Germany and Russia, who would then use words Kaiser and Tsar respectively, were more uh, the usage of the of the lesser title rather than the chief title. So rather than styling themselves as Augustuses or autocrators, they styled themselves as Caesars in the sense that, uh, like, and I, I dare say, I don't actually know this, this is purely a theory, but because there was at least two major occasions where the Byzantines married off princesses to to Russian or Rus or Rus, I suppose, um, uh, aristocracy. So there was, I think, it was the a relative of John Zemisky's married prince, uh, one of the princes of Kiev, and that's when they adopted Orthodox Christianity. It was basically on the promise of marrying the daughter of the emperor, he would convert to Orthodoxy and convert his. Uh, Drugina and his his court to orthodoxy and they became orthodox and that was the grand prince of kiev and then right at the fall of constantinople i think sophia paleologos might have been the niece of the last emperor constantine the 11th um mm -hmm. and she married i believe one of the princes of muscovy and so there's this idea that essentially the the aristocracy of russia are not only sort of metaphorical or, or you know like loose descendants of, of 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 east rome of byzantium and the orthodox church but they actually are by marriage and so maybe there's a an, an idea or a sense that being the descendants of byzantium makes them the caesars of the legacy rather than actually being the augustuses of that legacy if that makes sense you know because like they, they yeah. they're married into the female line rather than being the male descendants if that makes sense i don't i don't necessarily know i'm just positing that question but i've yeah. always that, that that might actually play a role into why they've used different names for titles and then simply if the germans have used kaiser it's just simply as a a, a germanification of the russian use of czar or something i don't know i do you, I, I, do you know what charlemagne would have used um rex i believe because he was crowned he, king of king of the romans by the pope Okay, so he wouldn't have been, but he wouldn't have been referred to as emperor or any of any kind. I mean, I mean, to my knowledge, he was crowned king of Rome by the Pope on okay. Christmas Day. So, I I can't remember what year that was exactly, but uh, I don't think he adopted the use emperor because I believe 
I believe was crowned king, the king of Rome. What and about um, Otto? He was the first official Holy Roman Emperor, right? Well, that's the thing, yeah. He would have been uh, Kaiser, right? Yeah, well, exactly. Um, actually, uh, this is where I probably need to even rewatch the streams I did with, with AM about this because I know <laughs> we, we sort of we touched on this. Um, Which is you know, kind of what I'm thinking too. Like, I'm like, yeah, because essentially we did Nations of Charlemagne. We sort of touched on this, and I've just sort of briefly forgotten. Funny enough, we got to the topic. I didn't think I didn't think we were going to talk about Charlemagne. So I didn't even think of it. But I, I, yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that either. But my, hmm. uh, this, you have your theory. I want to put out my theory and. You know, this is completely just speculation. I, there's no evidence of it necessarily. But I was thinking more along the lines of, like, as um, the idea of emperor emperor becomes more Christian, um, the use of the secondary title make uh, might make a lot more sense because there's sort of a recognition of 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 Christ as. Um, maybe the Augustus in some sense without needing an Augustus on, or like a, a, a physical Augustus on earth. Yeah. I, I think that, that, that part plays a part. But in the end, if, if it's, it's, if it's an Augustus on earth, it, like why not a translation of Augustus rather than Caesar? Like that's still the odd thing, right? They use well, the left title rather than the higher title. Well, that's what I'm saying. So to lead deference basically. Oh, as into, like in a spiritual context, the God you mean, or yes, to God. Oh, okay. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe God is the eternal Augustus, so therefore mm. the title is no longer necessary. Maybe, but that again, total yeah. theory. Total theory, not, not just an idea. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 that's an interesting thought thought experiment. I've actually never thought of that myself, but isn't it makes for an interesting one? And again, it sort of would be it's indicative of this interplay between this meshing of say roman bureaucracy roman government roman notions of imperium then being tempered by the christian ideal and world vision of that you know god is like a divine augustus in a sense and then like the emperor is his caesar as it were in the same way that's sort of like god's vicar is the pontifex Pontif pontifex maximus yeah yeah that, the same kind of dynamic yeah exactly um so that'd be that that'd be interesting. I think I might uh, ask uh, Charles Coulomb about that. Uh, what what he thinks about that? Mm, that'd be um, a point for for sure. But yeah, so I think that uh, unless you have anything to wrap up, I think that's a great place to uh, to halt uh, because we've we've sort of inched our way into sort of the ideas of Christian imperial mm. idea, and I'm going to cover that in much more detail with Charles Coulomb. Uh, Hopefully later this week, maybe yeah. um, maybe uh, a little further down the line. Um, so uh, people can far follow uh, Marcus on oh, Twitter. Can I, can, I, can I finish on a point oh, just briefly? Sure. Yep. Sorry, just I, I actually just want to wind back because and, and I do and I do owe this to uh, to our, our anyone who's Persian watching this. I because uh, I, I was quite unsure about the story of Astyages, and I was just wondering if just uh, I could. Yeah tell the story just so i didn't i didn't sound like i was talking nonsense I, I i've actually just pulled up like the wikipedia but i just want to read the prophecy if i can okay okay so uh, I'm, I'm just reading this verbatim from from wiki so anyone can read this and it's there but i'll just for the sake of the discussion i just want to make it clear that there was a a um a prophecy and that did this sort of is said to have taken place 
Um, the account given by the ancient Greek historian Herodotus relates that Astyages had a dream in which his daughter, Manadane, gave birth to a son who would destroy his empire. Fearful of the dream's prophecy, Astyages married her off to Cambyses of, of, of Anshan, who had a reputation of being a quiet and thoughtful prince and whom Astyages believed to be no threat. Uh, and of course, Anshan is a province which gave rise to, uh, it's where I believe Pasagade was located and that's where uh, Cyrus actually rebelled from. So um, just keep that in mind. Um, when a second dream warned Astyages of the dangers of Man uh, Mandane's offspring, Astyages sent his general Harpagus uh, uh, to kill the child Cyrus. Herodotus correctly names Cyrus's parents, though he fails to mention that Cambyses was king. Oh, sorry, Cambyses was a king. Modern scholarship generally rejects this claim that Cyrus was the grandson of Astyages. Harpagus uh, was unwilling to spill raw blood, nor murder an infant, so he gave it to uh, he gave the infant to a shepherd, Mithridates, whose wife had just given a stillborn child. Cyrus was raised as Mithridates' own son, and Harpagus presented the stillborn child to Astyages as the dead Cyrus. Uh, however, when Cyrus was found alive at age 10, Astyages spared the boy on the advice of his magi, returning him to his parents in Anshan. Harpagus, however, did not escape punishment, as Astyages is said to have fed him to his own son at a banquet. Cyrus succeeded his father in, in 559 BC and 553 BC on the advice of Harpagus, who was eager to re eager for revenge for being given the abominable supper, Cyrus rebelled against Astyages. After three years of fighting, Astyages' troops mutinied during the battle for Pasagado, and Cyrus conquered his in his the Median Empire. Astyages was spared by Cyrus, and despite being taunted by Harpagus, Herodotus says that he was. Uh, Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, oh, Herodotus says that he was treated well and remained in Cyrus's court until his death. So, yeah, I, I wasn't talking nonsense about the prophecy. I, I just forgot elements of it, but that's kind of the story of Astyages and Cyrus. Uh, there is that kind of, um, you know, that the, the the child escaping in the reeds kind of thing and given to a shepherd. You know, that does tend to crop up because um, it's 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 a part of like with Romulus and Remus. You have like the she wolf suckling them on the Tiber, like that's there, and then there's um you know like the story of like uh you know i, I always forget you know I always get confused between moses and, and david in this sense but you know like there's you know, the baby in the reeds and you know being spared from the pharaoh and then you know if you yeah. go to um uh, uh herod's uh judy you know the, the red marking of the door of passover because you know the boy will destroy the kingdom these themes happen to crop up time and again in you know history that could arguably co, co like converge with mythology like these these, there's a lot of interesting it's kind of like how every old religion actually has like a flood story and you know whether it's like yeah. the australian aboriginals or the old japanese or the chinese or the you know or, or, or like in the west you know with the ark and and noah there's like an, a great flood inundation story in almost every sort of um sort of cultural memory which sort of you know how can this happen how can this convergence happen over such a vast different distance of time and and area but yet everyone has like global inundation story it's just a fascinating thing that tends to crop up in old sort of mythological history if you could call it that very true yes indeed um well uh well marcus uh you you do um something very difficult which is um you make somebody who currently is uh, really sort of focused on 
maybe modern history at the moment. Um, actually enjoy ancient history, which I've always been I've always been daunted by ancient history. Um, and but you make it quite interesting um for me so i uh I well, well thank you, you. I, I i'm glad yourself and your audience and some people can uh can uh tolerate and appreciate my tangential kind of darting off in several directions at once so well, it, it kind of works it is, it is with good. um sort of uh my bullet points if, you, if yeah. that makes sense you, it, yeah Sometimes yeah. you need to be tangential to cut to cover dot points, but uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's always fabulous, and I always love talking about th these subjects. It's always very fascinating. Although sometimes, like, I, I do find that if I don't get time to do the sufficient reading, or like, you know, like I was telling you pre-show, like I actually ordered a book like a month ago, still hasn't arrived. It's Adrian Go Adrian Goldsworth's where this new book about Persian Rome, and I still has arrived. Like I even ordered a, like a present for my father, like a, a particular book about um, it was it was the writing of a um. Of a surgeon who served um who served in in like in the russian theater of world war ii um and like it, it was meant to get like arrived like two weeks before christmas and it got here like after christmas so i don't know what's going with the postal service but there's yeah. just some stuff i've ordered that hasn't arrived on time or at all and That's um I was, I was a little bit sort of unprepared and then you know real life gets in the way and things get busy and it's always sort of hard to have the background because like i felt a bit embarrassed about that story about sdr is like i knew that there was that story but i just kind of i couldn't remember it its entirety and it's like no no i gotta do justice to anyone who's persian here i don't want to butcher this story That's well, why I, I appreciate you allowing me to read at the end because it was important you know it's important for people's stories to be told properly you know what i mean and and for it to be truthful and you know, and, and as someone who loves history, you know, authentic information matters, even if it does touch on mythology, you know, uh, people's, uh, people's like national history and, and cultural legacy kind of deserves to be told, particularly great civilization like Persia, you know, which, you know, should be spoken of in, in, the, in the similar esteem to Greece and to Rome and to Egypt, you know, even China, in some respect, they are great civilizations, and they deserve their due deference. Uh, they they deserve their due deference. Well said. Uh, so, but uh, for people looking for more of your content, I will have your Twitter in the description. Mm -hmm. And if anybody uh, wants to listen to you uh, on uh, Apostolic Majesty stream, they can find streams. They can find you there as well as we have many uh, hours of content there on AM channel. That's for sure. And then uh, Academic Agent has you on from time to time as well. Mm -hmm. uh, is there any other mm -hmm. uh, place that you uh, are commonly found? Uh, no, not really. I just sort of my nonsense on Twitter, which is often unrelated to what I actually talk about on streams. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, like occasionally I'll, I'll, you know, this is our second stream we've, we've had together, which was, you know, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, you know, every so often I'll jump on with Oron McIntyre. Actually, funnily enough, I, if you want to, delve more into the caesar thing i did a very very good stream about the 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 idea and the historicity of caesar with aura and that was i think um i think it was in september october i might have done it i can't remember exactly sort of like in the back end of last year yeah i think um, i i think i listened to that too it was very good but uh, yeah it, your your work sometimes blends for me you know, as it often does. And, and the worst thing is, like, I sort of dull from time period time period. It's like AIM and I will talk about, you know, like, Austria-Hungary or, like, the Franco-Prussian War, and then the next minute we're talking, you know, like, the Greco-Persian Wars, and then it's, you know, the Rome's conquest of Gaul, and then it's the Crusades, and it sort of darts around everywhere. And, you know, 
am and i read a lot of material to actually canvas all these points because you know usually people will specialize in a particular era of history and then you know we sort of canvas we do these big board brushes and you sort of need to go through a lot of material to get through them um the other thing i'll say is that Oren and i are planning on doing a part two but again i need to do some more reading on it and that is this whole what is a dictator and what's the historical relevance of dictator. And I'm actually glad we touched on it today because it is kind of important. And uh, and Oren and I are going to talk about because obviously that's a word that gets thrown around in modern journalism. And again, it's a very inaccurate word when used in its incorrect context, as, as modernists do misuse it. Um, yeah, so you know, there's a couple of those sort of streams. Um, uh, I haven't really been anywhere else. Oh, actually, myself and Prudentialist occasionally stream. So, you know, if you look on um, Prudentialist's channel, there's about, you know, three or four episodes where we've done things together. And so, and often, if anyone who cares about what's going on in Ukraine, Russia, every so often, every few months, myself, Charlemagne, Prudentialist, Semigog, we talk about, we just sort of do periodic updates of that of that there. So you'll find me there as well and uh yeah no that's that's about it and i mean in the end if hopefully i get my hands on these books and if we want to have a an addendum or something at the uh, you know in a few months time or indeed if you fancy having both myself and am on maybe we can come on for a joint stream or something we'll we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens awesome yeah well it's a pleasure having you um thank you everyone for watching please like share comment and subscribe and god bless bye everyone thank you